everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. I am so happy to welcome my friend Connor Goldsmith back to the show, co-hosting with me today. And what an honor it is to meet Saber Perzada for the first time. Uh, Saber, welcome to Grey Malkin Lane. Let me have you both introduce yourselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And then our intro question for today is, do you have any stories about Paris? We're going to read about Magneto's visit to Paris a little bit later. So uh, we'll, we'll get there in a little while. But let's uh, let's begin with Saber. Hi. Hi, Saber Pirzada here. The pronouns are he and him. Uh, you may know me from my work on the Marvel Studios shows Moon Knight and Ms. Marvel. Uh, on the comic side, I've also written a few short stories for Ms. Marvel in Marvel's Voices Identity, as well as the two-issue uh, Dark Web Ms. Marvel series, most recently, I've co-written with Iman Vellani, who plays Ms. Marvel herself, the new series Ms. Marvel, The New Mutant. And I also have a series called Cult of Carnage Misery, which stars uh, Liz Allen from the Spider-Man side of things. Uh, as far as Paris goes, uh, are we doing these Paris stories now? Do yeah. a Paris story. Go for it. Um, one time, it was pretty much by surprise because I was on my honeymoon with my wife. We were in Venice. And we kind of ran out of things to do in Venice. And it turned out that it was it was cheaper for us to leave Italy entirely and go to Paris for, for one day uh, than it was to take the train anywhere else in Italy. So that's what we did. We hopped on a plane and we went to Paris and we did all, we did all the classic things like go up, you know, the Eiffel Tower, do a, a sunset, your cruise on the Seine, have some crepes uh, and some macarons. And that was it. We came back. So. Very fond memories of that place, um, but and would love to go back someday. But that that's about it. Uh, and let me welcome Connor back to the show. Connor, how are you? It's been uh, we got to hang out at FlameCon. It's good to see you. Again. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for having me back. Uh, my name is Connor Goldsmith. Pronouns he him, but gay she her. If you know me that way, is fine. <laughs> uh, I am the host of Cerebro, um, another X Men podcast that fans of this show may be familiar with chad actually I, we were just talking about how august was a real mess for me and i haven't had i've had a bunch of bonus episodes i did the hellfire gala interview with jerry i did the dark x-men interview with steve fox um but i haven't had a regular episode go up in a little bit and the most recent one is actually chad on calvin rankin mimic so check that out if you haven't yet i think we had a lot of fun uh and then uh in a couple days, I'm recording Amanda Sefton with Anna Peppard, which I'm really excited about. She's Delightful. one of my favorite obscure X-Men characters. And I think she has a lot of potential if someone... Well, Marvel, if you're listening, I have a pitch. Uh, I'm like, <laughs> let me not let me not give up the, the, the juice without getting the squeeze, right? Um, uh, Paris. Have you ever been to Paris, Connor? No, I haven't. And I have... So... so um, like Magneto, I'm Jewish, and uh, Paris is kind of <laughs> anti-Semitic, so like France generally. So I've just kind of never, although I've heard that they hate Muslims so much now that they don't really have time for anti-Semitism anymore. So you know what? Um, still not maybe my favorite uh, destination for a vacation. If you're listening, France, this is a generalization. This is a generalization. Um, but so I've never been, but actually my mom loves Paris. My mom, yeah, I can say as a Muslim, I didn't feel hated there. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> um, 
famously, my mother is not Jewish. If you listen to my podcast, she loves Paris. So uh, she took my sister there on a girl's trip. And I was like, well, why don't I get to go? She's like, you're not a girl. And I was like, well, but. Like, A, I don't really want like, I mean, the Louvre would be cool. Right. But I was like, I'm not like gagging to go to France, but if I'm not invited now, I really want to go. Right. And so I was annoyed and she was like, you're a boy. I was like, right, but I'm gay. She's like, that doesn't mean you come on the girls trip. And I was like, in my opinion, it should, but, um, <laughs> that, cause it's not like I'm, I said to her, it's like, I get to go on the guys trips, the straight guys trips. I'm not invited. The gay guys trips. I'm not six pack abs, fire Island enough. So like, you know, Anyway, that's my Paris story. Uh, I've never been. Uh, I hear it's beautiful. <laughs> lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of the show. I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, uh, a documentarian, and an author. I also uh, had a delightful time doing Mimic on Cerebro. Connor, thank you for that. Was uh, That was really fun. I Thanks have never been to me. Paris. I, uh, my dad did, however, live in Vegas for years. So as a teen, we would go stay with him. And he would always, he was like a high roller gambler a lot of the time. And he would just put us, mostly because he didn't want a parent. He would put my little sister and I up in various hotel rooms so we could entertain ourselves. And weirdly, Every time you tell me new facts about your life. <laughs> I, have, I mean, I get why you wrote a memoir, right? A, like, a there's a lot. Mind. Yeah, but uh, we would stay in the Paris a lot. So I actually spent a lot of time at the Paris Casino in Vegas growing up, and I'm kind of fond of it. Although I hate Vegas; it's my least favorite city in the whole country. Uh, but you know, I do have a lot of memories of like eating in the Eiffel Tower at various buffets and uh, like entertaining myself as a teenager there. Uh, we're gonna open today, spending a little bit of time getting to know Saber. Uh, Saber, I know your name from uh, Moon Knight and Ms. Marvel on uh, on various uh, television. Series series that I love. And I uh, I initially reached out to you after reading your Dark Web Miss Marvel book uh, for Marvel. But after that, they started doing uh, your Misery book. And then you got announced as the new mutant writer for Ms. Marvel. And I was like, holy shit, Like, <laughs> there's a lot for us to talk about. And I already had you scheduled on the show. Uh, I would love <laughs> if you would be willing to to begin a little bit with your origin story as a kind of comic book fan into your early professional work, if you would. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much a lifelong comic book reader. Um, have, have been reading comics pretty much since I could read. Uh, kind of discovered Marvel and X-Men when I was visiting my cousin in India. And in Mumbai, there were these blackouts happening in which we couldn't really leave the apartment and do much as the city had kind of shut down. But he had this giant comic book collection all full of Marvel and in particular X-Men stuff. So that was my introduction to comics in general and I just devoured that stuff over a course of days. And then you know, consequently after that, started my own collection of, of comics. Um, you know, since then, I actually tried to, to write comics professionally before I ever had a foothold in TV. So it was actually comics that came first. So, yeah, I found it difficult because I wasn't an artist. So I needed to find artists online and pay them for their time to illustrate the stories that I was writing. And that was very expensive. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was kind of doing that as a snail's pace while doing assistant jobs in Hollywood, working my way up the TV ladder. And it it just took that long to do to finish any any graphic novel that, you know, ultimately I had racked up a few TV credits before I had ever finished a graphic novel. Uh, but the stars kind of aligned where uh, some of the work I was getting 
was in adapting comic book things such as Ms. Marvel and Moon Knight. And by that time, I had gotten to the finish line on a couple of graphic novels. And so all of that experience kind of came together to open the door for me to write some comics for Marvel and kind of get my foothold in into comics sort of retroactively after having adapted them. So um, that's kind of how I got into all this stuff. What were your books growing up? What were the things that you loved? Um, just in general, uh, I discovered Arkham Asylum and Batman versus Predator at a very young age. Uh, loved those things. Um, on the X-Men side, it was the Dark Phoenix Saga was my introduction to X-Men. And then after that, I jumped all the way to Onslaught and Age of Apocalypse and then kind of just jumped around from there and, you know, started a collection of X-Factor starting all the way from issue one and, and collected all of those. And that, that got me into Follow the Mutants and, you know, all of the other cross Inferno, all the other big crossovers that that, that encompassed. Um, and then, of course, I had a Spider-Man collection as well. Spider-Man I was big on. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man made a big impression on me, as did all the other Ultimate books. Um, so, yeah, pretty big mix of things, I would say, but mostly Marvel concentrated. The uh, the Age of Apocalypse, uh, as that was coming out weekly, I'd be like, Mom, we have to go to the comic shop. It's going to sell out like the new the new Age of Apocalypse book is out. That was like a really high anticipation era for me as a fan in high school. Uh, <laughs> Connor, I know uh, I know this is an era that you are perhaps less fond of, question mark. <laughs> um, I think part of doing Cerebro that's been really lovely is I've found something to like in just about every era. Uh, there are some that are really tough, but uh, I think there's always a gem to find, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I I think it's really well done. It's a really fun era of comics. Uh, now, Sabra, you are doing a lot of TV work, obviously, but it sounds like comics has been kind of your dream for a long time. Uh, what's it yes, like? Yes, that's right. What's it like doing these new projects at Marvel Comics? I would love to hear some of your professional journey now. Yeah, I mean it's it's very surreal. It's my favorite part of my day is is to look at my emails and see the new artwork that has come in, whether it's pencils or inks or colors or even just like a lettering proof. Um, it's it's the most fun I've I've had, even compared to anything in TV. And it's been a much more intimate process than in TV because when you're making a TV show, there's hundreds of people involved, and it's it's a much bigger collaboration. Whereas in comics, it's like maybe six people. Um, so that's been great. Um, and the editors are very encouraging of, of, of big story swings that, that we, we've been wanting to take. Um, and so that's that's been very liberating to, to just feel like you've got the best cheerleaders who are equipping you with the tools you need to tell your story. Um, so yeah, it's been really fun. Ms. Marvel, we got to start here because this is the big X-Men content now. Ms. Marvel is a incredible character who's been around for a while. She uh, has been called the modern Peter Parker in a lot of ways. It's an idealistic kind of terminally delightful teenager who has uh, an incredible family that has introduced a lot of uh, a lot of American readers, I think, to uh, Muslim American culture in a way that they had not previously had coming out of a lot of, frankly, racist and awful times. Uh, and she's just like everyone's favorite hero. She's an incredible character. I would love to hear some of your history with this character. And then the giant question that I have to start with is, why is she a mutant now? I think it's amazing. But why? <laughs> you know why? I mean, why do you think? <laughs> she was supposed to be a mutant in the first place. They just couldn't at the time. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the mutant thing I think is interesting because you know, people have accused us of, you know, simply doing it for the sake of synergy with the TV series. 
Um, but what I like to remind people is that we actually don't really know what it means to be a mutant yet in the MCU. I don't think that's really been defined outside of Kamala and maybe Namor, I think. I don't know that he counts as a mutant, but possibly. Um, he does in the comics. Unclear if he does in the movies. She's the first one right. where they've said it. in a Where it's actually explicit. Thing. Yeah, so there we go, yeah. right? So so I, I think that, that territory is yet to be defined and explored in the MCU. Whereas in the comics, I think it's very well defined what that means and what it implies about her and what her experience is going to be moving forward. Um, we found it very rich territory to explore because she is a character who has a family, who's actually been raised with unconditional love and support, which is is somewhat unique among the X-Men characters in general. So how do you take a character like that and then introduce her to this world where you're going to be experiencing bigotry and hatred and fear? Um, and how do you respond to that? And that because she's had so much experience compared to her TV counterpart, like she would probably go in with a sense of confidence that she knows how to handle this. She's been through all this before. And then to realize that, no, it, it is a unique experience to be one of the X-Men, to be a mutant on the front lines um, against some very powerful enemies, um, that that's going to be a new experience for her to navigate. We felt that it was rich territory to explore. Now, some of that happened before I was ever involved, and I kind of knew, you know, hints of, of where they were headed. And if you go back to Dark Web, I do make a not-so-subtle reference to, you know, the, that, that image of Wolverine in the sewers from mm -hmm. uh, the, the Dark Phoenix saga um, that that uh, I sort of recreated that pose with Kamala not not sort of as an intentional tease, but just having some fun knowing that that was territory we may have been able to explore at some point. Um, but a lot of those decisions were made, and I was just sort of looped in as they were happening. Um, and Iman Vellani was already involved with that series before I ever got involved. Um, oh, so I, I joined that when it was sort of, I wouldn't say it was midstream, but certain things were already in place when that happened. Um, in terms of my relationship with the character, so I had known the editor, Sana Amanath, from before that series was even announced. We actually had some mutual friends in common from the Bay Area. I, I studied uh, at UC Berkeley, and so we had some friends over there that, that knew her. Um, and they knew at that time that I wanted to write comic books. So they'd sort of connected me with her, and we sort of kept in touch. And I was very excited when the announcement came out that they were doing this Ms. Marvel series. The first day that it came out, I think that was in 2014, I went to my local store and I bought several copies. Um, and it was with, when issue two came out that I really understood what they were doing. And I said, oh my God, this is the new Peter Parker um, and it just spoke to me on so many levels as a Pakistani American, as a Muslim American myself, um, that, that, it, you know, it very quickly became my favorite character. And ever since that I've been able to, to write this character, I've been able to sort of imbue a lot of autobiographical experiences into her world and her stories. And that's been a very personal and, and loving experience for me. We've seen some incredible writers working on Ms. Marvel over the years. She's grown a lot as a character. There's a there's a maturity about her in some of her recent stories where there's a lot of kind of innocent wonder at her at the beginning. Uh, she carries a lot of weight on her shoulders and never loses sight of like the bigger hopes and dreams. So I think there's a Peter Parker energy about her in that way, in that she never gets uh, uh, buried under all this. Connor, what's your history with uh, with Ms. Marvel as a character? So I loved the it was a, it's been a long time since I read it and I'm rereading it now because I didn't read it all the way through and uh, it's much more relevant to my show now. So I have to catch up. But uh, I've started back from the beginning with G. Willow Wilson's initial run on the character. I've known Willow for years through my day job. Actually, I met her and Saladin Ahmed at a symposium on Muslim writers in sci-fi fantasy 
um, because in my day job at the time, I was doing mostly sci-fi fantasy. I'm a literary agent uh, for your listeners if this is their first episode with me. Um, at the time, I was mostly doing sci-fi fantasy fiction for adults. So uh, Saladin's book, um, Throne of the Crescent Moon, was a huge hit. And then this was a long time ago. It was his debut. And this was before he was in comics at all, I think. Uh, and then Willow's Alif the Unseen had been a huge hit. So they were two people I was interested in meeting because I wanted to talk to them about the books. I wanted to, you know, pick their brains a little. If they had any up and coming like friends, I would have been interested to chat with them. So it was just like a getting to know you. I was also just interested in the subject because it was sort of an emerging uh, subgenre at the time. I've always been sort of keen on the whole concept of the character. Um, I think that she and Miles Morales are the two most successful characters. Marvel has introduced solo characters in like decades. Uh, Miles had the slight leg up of being a Spider-Man, but also the impact of you're not Peter Parker, which led to a lot of horrible. I mean, they just made a great movie out of that fan response, right? Um, Kamala was a little different because it was so bold as a new direction. And it felt like they introduced her in part to underline that Carol was not going to be Ms. Marvel ever again. And I think that that was a smart way to, to sort of go about that legacy shift, right? Because there's always with legacy heroes, the worry that they'll regress uh, and that the classic one will come back. So I thought that was really cool. Um, I was sad she wasn't a mutant, especially when Sana Amana and Willow had said like, oh, we wanted her to be a mutant, but they wanted us to tie into this Inhumans initiative, you know? Um, and I, so it feels sort of like she's finally come home, but I think it's good that they've preserved the Inhuman thing because if we're going to rehab the Inhumans a bit, I think it's good to have that character who can kind of be a bridge. But mostly I was just very charmed. I'm not a big YA reader, so it wasn't, it didn't feel like a comic that was like for me, but I was really glad it existed. Um, and I found the character immensely charming from the get-go. I, I would say I read probably the first 20 issues and then kind of fell off. So I'm starting it from the beginning. I had completely forgotten about like the Thomas Edison chicken man, for example, until Saber <laughs> brought him back in Dark Web. And I was like, wait, I got to reread this book. There's so much stuff in that book. It's so funny. Um, so yeah, no, so I'm, I'm revisiting. I'm really excited. And I loved this first issue. Um, of Ms. Marvel, the new mutant. I was nervous about it. I was nervous for Amon Vellani. I'm a big Amon Vellani fan. And it's, you know, she's already famous, which is hard for a young person. But uh, this is a high pressure scenario. And I thought the two of you did an incredible job. Um, just really brilliant kind of start to finish at, at crystallizing everything, all the different ways that character has been pulled over time. And uh, I really think that the use of Karima Shapandar as the villain here is very smart. Uh, and I, I'm keen to see where that goes. It, explicitly calling out the fact that uh, Karima is a racial minority, but is also part of this fascist apparatus that is racist is something that I've kind of been waiting for, but it feels like, I mean, she's also got Omega Sentinel programming in her head. It's complicated, but 
if we accept that this is who she is now, it is part of, there's just a lot there to dig into. And I like that we have some South Asian writers digging into it. I think that's really cool. Oh, so, thank you so much. Um, and it was it was a fun secret that I was sitting on just seeing Iman's writing from the beginning and being like, oh my God, she is just a pro from, from day one and really knew her stuff and, and was going to deliver in such a massive way. It's been fun to see readers' responses to that now that it's out there. The first time she went on a red carpet rant about how the MCU is not Earth 616, although she said 616 because she's not a crazy person like me, but I, I say 616. It's a problem that I can't, <laughs> I can't get. It's, I've said it that way since I was like eight years old, so I just I can't stop. But uh, but when she was just like, but that's wrong. It ha like Mysterio must have been incorrect because that and I was like, OK, she gets it. She gets it. <laughs> It, uh, uh, Saber, I grew up, uh, Mormon. I'm not Mormon any longer, but it just dawned on me. We could have like a Mormon, a Jew, and a Muslim walk into a bar joke. We're very <laughs> that. Yeah. No, I do enjoy the, the joke vibe of the three of us going anywhere together. It didn't, it didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> that until just now. Uh, Saber, I would love to ask kind of a two part question. Uh, what have been the challenges of mixing Ms. Marvel's world with that of the X Men now? And what's it like working with Iman Velani, who just seems like, I, I used the phrase earlier, terminally delightful, uh, seems to also describe her. <laughs> yes, I would say that's accurate. Perfect um, casting. With, with Iman, it's, it's, it's been a total delight. We had worked together briefly on the show as well. I mean, I was mostly doing the photography for Moon Knight at the same time that Ms. Marvel was filming. So I only overlapped with her on Ms. Marvel briefly, but we did work together. So it was nice to work together again in this new capacity where we're now co-writers. And it's it's a different take on the character. But to see that she was operating so much as a fan of the comics themselves, not being like, oh, here's the stuff we couldn't do in the show because we didn't have time for it. There was none of that. It was always like, OK, this is the version from the comics. You know, what what can we mine from there? Um, and she really thinks like with with art in mind first, which has been fun. And has actually been a moment of growth for me as a writer to start thinking in that same type of way of like not just the story, but, you know, what is fun for the artist to draw and how can we fully embrace what we can do on the page? So that's been the fun and the joy of working with her. And she's she's been really supportive of some of the swings I've been wanting to take in it as well. And we just felt like we found a great natural rhythm. Um, your first question, remind me again what it was. Uh, uh, how, what's it like integrating like? the worlds of Ms. Oh, Marvel yes, the X-Men. Um, uh, challenging. And the reason it's challenging <laughs> is because very easily, very quickly, the, the series can feel crowded because Kamala already has her family, her Huge friends. supporting cast, yeah. Huge supporting cast, and they're wonderful characters, and so we don't want to sideline those characters because we think that's part of the charm of the entire series. It's not just Kamala. At the same time, we have to service the fact that she is a member of the X-Men um, who are going through a lot right now. And mm -hmm. so, you know, finding the right balance of, you know, how much of the X-Men is right in terms of servicing this new direction for her, but and how much of it is too much to the point where it's overcrowding. But at the same time, we want every dynamic she has with every individual X-Man to be different and unique. Um, and so it's sort of finding that. But at the same time, it's like, how do you make sure that it feels like the same as Marvel series that we've all loved from the very beginning that, that Will, Willow wrote? Um, and so part of that is making sure that her new responsibilities as a member of the X-Men is pushing her in a new direction and perhaps being in conflict with, you know, in some ways how she was raised by her parents or, you know, what she feels her responsibility just as, you know, a citizen of Jersey City to be, all those types of things. 
Um, so we found that it was it was additive overall, but it it has been a tricky needle to thread. That really that really interesting balance of she knows what oppression is. She knows what it is to right. be a superhero, to be a young woman, to be a Muslim young woman, to uh, but to experience that from this place of like genocidal hatred like the mutants are going through right now is just a harsh life lesson for this character and seeing her wrestle with that in your issue was a really powerful thing because she's still hopeful i mean she just went through all this stuff with like cradle or whatever that government agency was that was right. kind of stuff on the, law. The teens. but she you yes. know every time she put herself in her in her uh in her costume they still were okay uh, this time it's different. This time it's 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 a different thing. She's hated on site uh, constantly. Uh, it's it's got to be a challenge to write a character that innocent having to grow up in such a harsh way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the fun of it, um, and it gives us a lot of interesting things to play with. So now every time she's talking to Emma Frost, and Emma Frost is lecturing her on how hard it is to be a mutant, I think there's another layer there to the fact that like Emma Frost is You're a rich a, white woman, though, a rich like, white woman. Like, that's yeah. ex that's exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say. Like, she's a rich white woman, so it's like, what does she have to teach Kamal? But at the same time, it's like, well, she did survive this massive attack on on Genosha. So it's so so I don't want to discount what Emma Frost's experiences have been because they've been horrific as well. You know, so just being able to sort of unpack that and and tackle some of those things head on, um, knowing that that Kamala is this South Asian, you know, Muslim young woman who has experienced depression herself. Hopefully, it, it's it's additive and adds another layer to it, um, without diminishing the suffering of any other characters in her series. I'm really My excited. Oh, I'm sorry, Chad. I didn't need to cut you. Oh, off. No, I'll say really quickly. I'm, I'm really excited about this. There's a long history of characters that kind of fit in the X-Men universe as mutants, but they don't ever quite fit. We've seen this happen with like Starlet Witch and Franklin Richards, like characters that don't quite fit the franchise. But this seems to be different. This is a character being brought into the franchise that they clearly have big plans for. She's part of the team. There's a new title. I'm really excited to see where it goes. And, and as Connor said, that first issue was brilliant. I'm very, very excited to see what comes next. Uh, Connor, what were you going to say? I thought Franklin fit fine, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, we can't, and we can't get into it. Uh, but no, I, I was going to say my favorite thing that you guys and Jerry have been teasing out is the dynamic between her and Shadowcat, um, because Kitty, Kate, Cat, whatever she's going by today, because I think maybe she's Cat now. Which my sister had a Katie to Cat edgy era i think she's still cat to her friends actually so you know i get it um but uh historically kitty pride is the character i've talked about this a lot on my show in the 80s when the mutant metaphor shifts away from being about white kids in the suburbs and shifts toward being about storm and kitty uh kitty who's still white but from an ethnicity that faces a kind of racism and is very loud about that. Bendis gives her that great speech uh, in his run that's like, well, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, she's Jewish from looking at her per se, but that's why I tell people always because I want them to know, and I feel the same way about being a mutant. And I, when uh, the, the thing that precipitated my whole podcast was I was on Patrick Williams's YouTube channel talking about how they might reboot the X-Men movie franchise, and I said, you need that young girl protagonist who's our point of view character and i think the smart thing to do now would to be have her be a muslim uh, a muslima because kitty in 1980 as a jewish girl was really like you weren't supposed to talk about religion in comics 
ever. And that made it difficult, especially for all these Jewish writers who wanted to talk about anti-Semitism and about racism in that way to, uh, to, to tackle it. And so Claremont doing that was really bold. And I think that the youth experience now that's somewhat akin to that, not to suggest that anti-Semitism has gone away, but I think that it makes sense to bring it more to a place of color-based racism. I think it makes sense to bring it more to the Islamophobic question, which the X-Men franchise thus far has not really tackled. Uh, you have Soraya, but she's a very extreme example of someone who's extremely devout. So it's not necessarily going to be like the every she's not the everyman in that way for an American readership right um I love that character but I partly love that she and Kamala can now interact more because I liked their uh their dynamic and champions um and then Monet is Muslim but is not particularly observant so we have sort of these two poles and it's nice to have this character who like Kitty is secular but it's a big part of her identity and who she is um, and I think that I just think it's really I think it's really smart. It never occurred to me when I said that on Patrick's channel that they would do it with Kamala Khan. But like she's the most logical character to do it with. And I think that now is a really exciting time to do it. Uh, so I love that Kitty looks at her now and is like that. Like you can tell at least my read on it, that the reason that Shadowcat is so harsh with Kamala here is because she sees herself and she sees that innocent girl who just wants to help. And where Kate's head is at right now, she's like, and that has brought me nothing but misery, right? So she's sort of trying to dissuade this girl while at the same time encourage her in like a tough love way. And I just think it's really interesting. I'm really enjoying that dynamic. Uh, weirdly, we're not yeah, gonna like, shift to, we're not going to shift to Magneto yet, but we're going to watch Magneto on a similar journey. When you try to when you try to yeah. long and you pay the price, and suddenly you got no choice but to hunt your enemies down. And we're seeing mm -hmm. on that journey right now. Uh, Saber, what were you going to say? I was going to say, Connor, you're exactly right. That's kind of sort of how we've been writing that dynamic between Shadowcat and Kamala, which is like she sees in Kamala the version of herself that had not had to face the brood by herself yet, you know. Right. And th and then that it reminds her her that to survive in this world today, that's not going to work. Uh, and so it's just been a, a fun dynamic to explore. I, the metaphor had always been there in terms of for me growing up, I always still kind of saw myself in the X-Men as the minority, yeah. you know? Um, and one of the things that, that is important to us in preserving the tone of Ms. Marvel and has personally has been true to my Muslim experience, I can't speak for others, is that like, it, you know, it obviously it has its challenges, but it's not all doom and gloom. You do have a wonderful support system of like-minded people, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and there's there's a lot to celebrate about this culture, about all these things. And we want to make sure that we're, we're always... Uh, highlighting all of those things together so that it's not just always the, the story of just you know here's here's the sadness of, of being just an oppressed minority but but here's all this the celebration that comes from the culture that we were raised with as well um and thankfully the the, the series um both the, the tv series and the comic series have allowed us to do all all of those things what is your take on the character uh karima shapandar uh we won't spend a lot of time on this character but for characters who be less yeah, familiar um, she's a, a mega sentinel she's a member of orcus uh, who's being occupied Cut. by a future version of herself. So so Karima's involvement was actually editor Jordan White's suggestion. And he Jordan's thought there would so be something smart. interesting to explore about the fact that she has in common with Kamal that she is South Asian. 
um, and given the way that we wanted the story to unfold, we actually felt that not even that was enough. We needed to introduce a new character mm -hmm. named Nithika, uh, who, as we will learn through the series, kind of sort of is playing her own game. And Orcus may not even realize what she's up to. Um, so so there's there's a lot of fun stuff to ex explore there. I was less familiar with Karima until once we started you know, to, to work on the series. And it was Jordan's suggestion when I started to unpack the layers of her. I was like, oh, there's a lot here to to play with. So yeah, um, yeah I can't say too much, but but we're we're excited to to explore more with this character. I thought Karima and Nithika were kind of vibing. I mean, at least like in a Karima, I mean, she's an evil robot. So I don't know how like how much <laughs> she's intrigued by people, but in that way. But it, with that the little like finger under the chin moment, I was like, oh, I see. And Nithika was terrified, but also maybe <laughs> a little also into it. I don't know. That was it, it was very Claremontian, <laughs> I'll say, in the sense that like female supervillains in an X-Men comic should always be vaguely flirting, threatening every female hero. That's very like that's very Claremont core. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, but at the end, I will ask the hero, you, but you get what I'm saying. At the end, I'll ask you to plug a little bit about what's coming <laughs> forward. But I want to switch gears uh, mightily for just a minute to talk about your other work. Uh, Connor and I have a similar love for some of the 60s gals. My favorite Spider-Man characters of all time are Betty Brant and Liz Allen. And both of these characters have oh, never wow. gotten to shine in the way that, uh, you know, Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane, Flash Thompson, uh, even Harry Osborn have gotten to making uh so so liz allen was the wife of harry osborne who was a drug addict the son of the green goblin he's a supervillain. she's raising her child who is currently bonded with a red symbiote she's also raising her husband's daughter through another woman <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of continuity but she's also like alchemax is, you think yeah, husband's son, son stanley you're talking about right Yes, uh -huh, Stanley. Uh, she's also running Alchemax, uh, which is a huge company that has been messing with symbiotes for a long time. And now she is a mixed symbiote, red and white, uh, kind of an anti-venom, venom blend, calling herself Misery. Uh, tell me a little bit about your work with uh, Liz Allen, who's a character that I've adored for as long as I've been reading comics. Yes. So I had been aware of Liz Allen, you know, since I've been reading comics because I had started with Amazing Fantasy number 15. And I don't think she had a name until because she's in it. But I don't think she had a name until like Amazing Spider-Man number four or something like that. I did not realize it was the same character from the J.M. DiMatteis run on Spectacular Spider-Man when, you know, Harry Osborn has his sort of climactic storyline as as the second Green Goblin. It took me some time to sort of put together that all of this was sort of the same character. Um, and I think it's been that, that sort of highlights for me what's been so interesting about Liz through the history of publishing with her is that different writers have come on and used her in totally different ways. And so finally, this opportunity came about through editor Devin Lewis to say, hey, we're going to give her a symbiote. Let's tell a story from her perspective. And initially, I was quite daunted by that task because I thought, well, how are we going to reconcile all these different takes on the character and now tell it in one streamlined way from her perspective? And I felt like to do that, you kind of have to unpack the trauma that she went through as the wife of Harry Osborn when he sort of had his sort of spiral into madness or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I sort of started from that perspective of let's the, the, the fresh territory that no one has explored is how does she unpack her grief over his more recent death because let's keep in mind he's died twice yeah and once we started to do that i thought well eventually we're going to have to unpack the deeper trauma that that she's been through um while at the same time let's start her off in a way that we rarely ever see a superhero or vigilante start off which is as this sort of super mom who's raising two kids and running this big company by day 
and then has this other life at night um, as somebody who has this symbiote. Um, and so it all felt like rich territory to explore. And, and that's what we're doing. The, the big habit I have and I'm trying to get out of it is I keep defining her accidentally in terms of her relationship with these other male figures in her life. And I'm trying to find a way forward through this series to define Liz on her own terms. Um, and hopefully that's how people will be talking about her moving forward. I'm going to make this. Misery. I'm going to make this very sober for just a minute. I'm a therapist in my day job, but I'm going to take you back to me being 17. And I had an abusive stepfather who was smacking us around. And someone told the therapist at school who called me into a meeting. And in the first visit, he said something like, you know, hey, I hear you're experiencing abuse at home. And I'm like, it's not abuse. He's like, it's all this stuff. And it was clearly abuse. But it wasn't until like the third therapy session where I was like, holy shit, it's abuse. Now I'm doing therapy for people and I'm helping them realize in order to live with our trauma, we have to own that it happened and realize how it's affected us. You had a page in your most recent issue of, of Misery where Liz is sitting with all the facts of her life. And then there's this gorgeous full page spread with snowflakes falling around her as she has this realization that she's been abused. And that's a moment that I've had myself, but I also see other clients. It was so impactful. I I, I think I tweeted about it. Uh, really, really beautiful done, a beautifully done storytelling, uh, my friend. Uh, really, really powerful. I'm I'm excited to see oh, wow. whatever journey you take her on as you, uh, I, I'm not sure how long you'll get with her, but no one's ever given her the focus like this. And it's really fun to see her become her own uh, through her trauma as this like crazy monster symbiote is empowering her. I, I'm kind of done with symbiotes, if I'm honest, Slobber, but I really like this series. <laughs> <Sure>. Well, <laughs> thank Chad, you, Chad. Here's... Thank you for sharing that, too. I, I found that so, so powerful. And, and it felt the big responsibility of if we're going to really tell this story, we've got to do it right. And so, you know, that was the research that I had done in terms of how people process their trauma. You're, you know, that's exactly what you said. It's like you have to kind of acknowledge it and call it what it is in order to own it. And so it just felt like that was a step that that Liz had to take. So so thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. And a mother of two who's running a billion dollar company. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, Cutter, what were you going to say? I was just going to say like that. I, so I've been checked out of Spider for long. I was not a big Spidey reader growing up. Um, but what I did read, I was a big Mary Jane fan because it was the 90s, you know, and it was like chain smoking soap star Mary Jane era, which is so my like big memory of Liz Allen was that she's Mary Jane's friend. And it's right after in Maximum Carnage. It's right after Harry's funeral. Right. And Mary Jane is just furiously chain smoking on Liz's balcony. So I've always felt like an affection for Liz. Also, her brother's the Molten Man. Right. I thought he yes. was hot, like Step literally hot. But also, <laughs> you know, uh, he wore those little Speedos. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've always, I'm always, I love a female character who's just like around and could become a protagonist if anyone would give her a shot. And so I think it's exciting. It's exciting to hear you say that you want her to get out from under, basically I came back into Spidey more recently because my friend Zeb Wells is writing Spider-Man. So I wanted to read that, but then also, um, the uh, the misery book, which I I I have only uh, read, I think the first issue of, but I I got the review copies and I was like, someone told me they were like, oh, Liz Allen is like Gwyneth Paltrow now and runs Alchemax and she has a symbiote and I was like, I'm in. Tell me more. <laughs> I need to know everything. So I'm excited to catch up on that because she's a really fun 
character. And I like that kind of, I mean, I'm a big Emma Frost fan. I'm a, a big Betsy Braddock fan. I like a, a woman who, I'm a big Monet fan. I mean, I like a woman who's a little prickly, who, uh, you know, is maybe not the most traditional hero. Uh, so I, I think it's exciting to see her stepping around. And, and Chad, you know, I've never been a big goo guy myself, but I think <laughs> that the symbiotes are here to stay and it's time to embrace the goo. I celebrate good storytelling, but I'm over the symbiotes. <laughs> it's, it is what it is. You know, it, it, people love people love those goo monsters. And I, I think better to to fight alongside the goo than to fight back the inevitable tide of goo. Right. It's sort of I will funny. embrace good storytelling. <laughs> and that's that's my only response. <laughs> <laughs> but I think slot, you know, I, I made a joke about Franklin Richards. Earlier. I think slot making her the Alchemax thing was really smart because in all the 2099 stuff, which is sort of sort of come yes. back recently, Alchemax is the big bad of Spider-Man 2099. So seeing Liz try to create something that's good and knowing that in at least one timeline, it goes very, very bad. It's the ultimate evil, yes. Totally. Right, is really interesting. Slot. Um, yeah. So I, I like that a lot. There's a, there's a lot of hooks there. There's uh there's some great stuff happening with the Osborne family right now. My word, what a crazy what this is a this is a crazy family. <laughs> this is not a Spider-Man podcast. <laughs> uh uh Sober, we're going to switch into our issue review in just a minute. I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts on the character Magneto if you will. We're doing a full Magneto month on my show in October. Uh it is all Magneto all the time and Ooh, we, it's the high holy days. That's We are great. starting with dense trauma. Oh, uh, Connor, you'll enjoy this. My last episode in September is a smut review of the book Candy by Terry Southern. Oh my we, God. And we immediately jump into Magneto Testament. <laughs> Next episode. That's crazy, but <laughs> also that's my brain is Candy Southern, Smut, and Magneto Testament. And then, <laughs> to some extent, right? I'm, so, I'm like laughing my ass off in one and then sobbing through the next. Uh, Sabra, yeah, what's, your, right. what's your connection to Magneto? That book's crazy. Or, or, yeah, yeah, it's, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big I, you know I hesitate to say this because I I fear it will be taken out of context but I'm a big Magneto fan I think the character is who wonderfully isn't what what context could that be taken out of <laughs> well he's he's done some questionable things but some of my favorite moments in all of X Men are, are many of them are Magneto moments you know Fatal Attractions I think is full of really epic moments you're just from 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 like the, the kid reader in me seeing him rip apart. Cable and then rip apart Wolverine and then see Colossus betray the X-Men to join him. It just felt like there was really epic things happening there. And then if you unpack the idea that by the end of it, Professor X was pushed to his breaking point, and that's what created Onslaught was that moment that that's sort of they created an entire villain off of the dynamic between Professor X and Magneto. And I think that's such an interesting thing that they did there. Um, the, one of my, my other favorite moments is uh, Magneto as Zorn and just not seeing that. Well, I guess I should have put a spoiler alert there for those who haven't read New X-Men. It's been but... 20 years. I think it's OK. <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite twists in comics was reading this character Zorn. And then when he takes the mask off and you reveal he was Magneto all along. I just think there's there's different takes on this character. Some of them are, are totally bonkers with his villainous plans. And some of them are deeply, deeply humanistic um, as such as a story we're, we're going to cover today. So, you know, the fact that any writer can sort of take him and, and do an interesting story on him, painting him sometimes as a hero, sometimes as an anti-hero, and sometimes as an out-and-out -out villain, I think speaks to the layers of this character that I've pretty much always loved. 
No, listeners, when we release this, you will have heard my interview with Jam Day Mateus all about his new Magneto series. There's a lot of complexity to this character. Uh, we're we're taking uh, we're taking you through a different Magneto story every episode this month, and it's gonna shift wildly. Today's another kind of heavy episode, but it's really brilliantly done as we kind of orchestrate his history around a little bit. Today's story is a little bit in two parts. We get some stuff that is modern as Magneto reflects on his past. Uh, and that's a that's a trope that Claremont does really well. He navigates that well. Uh, this book is from Classic X-Men number 12, part two. Now, Classic X-Men is a series that was reprinting the early Claremont stuff. But Claremont would follow it up with new backup stories that give context and or exploration to the characters or the stories that he was using. Uh, this is in number 12, and he's been writing the book for about 12 years. I, uh, I recounted a little bit of his history as he revealed Magneto was a concentration camp survivor. This is obviously another, uh, I don't know, 20 years before uh, Magneto Testament comes out. But this is a story that gives us what happened to Magneto after Auschwitz. Uh, and it's a really powerful story. It's one that a lot of people have heard of, but maybe not a lot of people have read. Uh, uh, Saber, was this your first time reading this particular story from Classic X-Men? Yes, it was. Uh, um, I, I actually didn't realize that Classic X-Men had these backup stories. So now I'm oh, so they're excited incredible. to sort of read these film things. The strange thing was that I, I, I felt that I had read it already, though, you know, because we, we all felt like we know this story. And yet, mm -hmm. actually seeing the story, I was like, "Oh, I've never, I, I somehow knew this, but I had never read it, and it was, it was fantastic to read." So, uh, and uh, Connor, obviously, you're familiar. <laughs> yeah, although I hadn't actually read it until more recently as well, because those classic backups are not as easy to get your hands on. I have the omnibus, which I really recommend. Uh, it provides context for which reprint each of the backups was in. It also. Uh, collects the, the the first half or so of Classic X-Men. Claremont did a George Lucas and just added new scenes to classic issues. And uh, it, it, it gives you the context for those. I was just revisiting that actually because he adds some Amanda Sefton stuff to the early Curtin Amanda stuff once he's decided she's a character who matters to him. Um, and I'm doing that episode soon. So it's been fun to revisit that because it's sort of this very like dubiously canonical stuff that's like, this is not in the original X-Men issue, but it's in the classic issue, which is canon. So complicated. Uh, but these backups are great. The ones that John Bolton draws in particular are just stunning. Um, you got and great Connor, Chris for the record, this was, you're saying it's the classic X-Men omnibus. Yeah. Yes, it's called. It. Yes, it's the omnibus, I believe, is called X-Men Classic because that's better for SEO. And eventually they did change pre-SEO the name of the book to from Classic X-Men to X-Men Classic, I guess, because of shelving. You want it shelved with X-Men, right? Um, but yeah, no, it's it's really good. It's a good it's a good omnibus. And uh, I, I love all these stories. This one is one of the best i think yeah. most people agree um, so I, i'm, I'm going to just introduce this story really quickly classic x-men 12 part 2 this is from august 1987 chris claremont is uh writing john bolton is on art with glennis oliver on colors tom orzakowski on the letters goat, glennis Manny Nascenti and uh, Terry Kavanaugh as the editors on this book. This is a story called A Fire in the Night. It's a 12-page story. It's a dense read because Claremont loves to pack his captions up with lots of uh, or his 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 panels up with lots of captions. We open on a very hot Magneto who's standing uh, or sleeping in Paris. Uh, we get to see him standing at the window in his briefs. 
<laughs> this man can get it at most times when he's attractive. The continuity of this, if we stack up kind of a lot of the backup stuff, and this is stuff we won't necessarily cover uh, in detail today, but uh, Claremont gave us the story of Magneto meeting Xavier and Gabrielle Haller and fighting the Nazis uh, in Uncanny X-Men number 161. Much later, Howard Chaikin gave us the story of Magneto going to New York for the first time, where Cassandra Michaels like tailors his costume for us uh, for him. And we will cover that particular issue on my show later this month. Uh, but he has his helmet there. So this is set somewhere after that. He's in Paris, kind of contemplating his life. Uh, the opening caption says, Paris, City of Light and Love. Uh, the, he's in the, the hotel Lucretia Concorde, which I'm going to assume is a real place. Uh, it says, and within a man feared and hated across the globe, once long ago, Paris was a dream to him, a sort of heaven on earth, where he and his beloved would celebrate a life rich with joy and infinite possibilities. He should have known better. But in those days, he still thought of himself as an ordinary man, content with hopes, with ordinary hopes and dreams. That is no longer so. Perhaps in truth, it never was. And there's going to be some interesting continuity here because the character Magda has not really been explored in the comics at this point. He, she's been connected to Magneto. We've learned that uh, that uh, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are his children. We got the story with her at the uh, Wondergore with Bova. Go see my Magda episode with uh, Noel Reed if you'd like to learn more of this character's history but magneto's grieving his losses very hard here so He's i don't I, I i'm sorry to interrupt oh, please go ahead but it's important context so the hotel leticia is a real place and is a very famous uh place specifically with regard to world war ii um it was the center of anti-nazi organizing by a lot of artistic exiles and whatnot who had been uh defamed by the Vichy government uh, during the occupation and uh, specifically like artists who had been rendered persona non grata were called the Lutetia crowd uh, because this was where they would meet up. And then after the liberation of Paris, it became a staging ground for refugees and displaced persons to get a place to stay. So it's a specifically, um, Claremont is making a very specific analogy here by having, er I was going to say Eric, because this is the Eric era, but that's not Claremont, it's a retcon later, but by having Magneto um, stay there specifically and, and dream of a life with Magda there. Because they never got there. I adore your brilliant brain. I look up a lot of stuff, but that is not a piece of, of information <laughs> that I knew at all. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, well. Magneto is sleeping and his helmet is resting on a newspaper. The headline says, Magneto escapes, worldwide manhunt mounted for mutant terrorist. Uh, on page two, uh, the caption, I'm not going to read all the captions, I promise, but he's older than he looks. And we get a reference about his recent world domination plots, about how he got turned into a baby by Alpha, the ultimate mutant. Uh, and I've done an episode on that guy with uh, with. Go check it out. It's kind of fun. Uh, we also uh, get the reference to how Davin Shikari or Eric the Red brought him back to life. This is a piece of continuity that Claremont will pick up in X-Men Volume 2 when he reveals that Moira McTaggart kind of futzed with his DNA a little bit. And so he is remembering his past and it feels like very new and very real to him. So we get a caption that says, uh, but that resurrection has an unfortunate price. A flood of memories exploding from a mind as keenly rejuvenated as the body that houses it. 
as always, the dream begins with Auschwitz and Magda. Now, again, there's a lot of continuity mixed in here with Magda that we're not going to spend some time on. But this is kind of our first meeting of her here, really. We As a person, see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we get to see her more than just a, a mother or, you know, kind of Bova's lady on the overview. <laughs> this is kind of the only Magda story. Outside of Testament, yeah. Outside of Testament, which is, uh, again, like a later writer fleshing this stuff out, yeah. Uh, and Greg we- Pak does a great... I mean, Magneto oh, yeah, yeah. is great to be it's, clear, it's, but I mean, in the in the classic material, this is sort of the only time she has a voice. It's really, it's really beautifully done. Uh, Sober, have you read Testament? No, I haven't. It's on it's my good. list now, though. It's a it's a tough read, but it's good. If you liked this, I would say it's kind of like, more this. <laughs> like clear out a day and read the whole thing in one sitting, and then like make room for lots of feelings. It's beautiful, but it's kind of like uh, it, it's kind of like sitting with like really dense trauma. It's like mouse. It's like oh, you got to be in a right, mood, right? You know, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty powerful. Uh, we get kind of references to the Auschwitz time. More than a million people died. It's setting up the stage for uh, giving the image of Magneto escaping with Magda or Magnus escaping with Magda back then. Uh, well, Magnus, it's interesting that you say that, right? Because we pre. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry, please, please. We uh, we have gotten now the story in Haifa where they fight Hydra together, Charles and Magnus, and he yes. meets Magneto as Magnus. And throughout the 80s material, he's called Magnus. And what's interesting about that to me is that. It's an alias, right? We don't, until Testament, we never find out Magneto's birth name. But in the period where he and Magda are on the run, he has called, he's chosen to call himself Magnus, maybe, or maybe after Magda left him, he took the name Magnus. So that's interesting, right? Because I I noticed rereading that he's never addressed by name by her ever right, in this story right. and not and Anya calls him Papa right so there's you don't know now later uh in the 90s when the Eric Magnus Lenzer identity is established it's said that that was the identity he took at this time um but in Claremont's intention I think maybe the idea is that he takes the name Magnus after this to remember Magda after she leaves uh, which I, I think is an interesting notion. Absolutely. And again, the competing identities, because we learn later it's Max Eisenhart, but he chooses this name to... Yeah, I still don't feel name. comfortable calling him that. I'm like, I don't know that man that way. That's like not... <laughs> Charles is wrestling with this in the comics. Now. I know. And yeah. I, I'm like, I relate. I'm like, he's Eric to me. Yeah. Uh, Sober, uh, Magneto has a pretty dense history. I'm not sure how much you're familiar with. But, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> And any comments before we continue, Summer? Uh, no, I, okay. I, I applaud the just <laughs> the fact that he's embracing sort of you know real life tragedy here, and how and I understand how difficult that is to do. It was something we did in the Ms. Marvel TV series where we made the conscious choice to say we're going to tie in Kamala's new history to partition to the origin mm-hmm. of Pakistan and India post colonialism, and that was a heavy decision that we made because we knew that it was going to bring up a lot of feelings for people who had either been through it or their parents had. Um, but we felt that if if you can use fiction as a way to sort of launch people into something that we think they should know about, that it was so important, you can never repeat those events, um, then it's worth the price of admission. You just have to do it as respectfully as possible. And it seemed to me that, that Claremont has done so here. Absolutely. So- 
we kind of pick up this scene specifically where Testament leaves off in a way. Uh, we are reminded that that Magnus grew up in Auschwitz. Like this is where he became an adult. We see him fight a guard to protect to protect Magda, and they rush to get away. And again, this is scenes that are picked up on in uh, Magneto Testament number five later, where we see what immediately preceded this. Uh, Much later, like yeah, yeah, like 20, twenty years, years later. later. <laughs> but when you stack up the continuity and read it in order, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Magne- Magnus is rolling in his sleep, kind of having these memories. Uh, the caption says they stagger more than run; their bare feet leaving a bloody trail in the snow. Their frail scarecrow bodies giving out all too quickly, and we see them wrapped in a blanket in the snow in the fire. They are emaciated. Uh, Magda's worried that they're going to find us, and Magnus, you know, says, you know, they're they're too concerned with their own. They're going to assume we're going to freeze to death or starve anyway she kind of wants to give up she's my family everyone i knew they all died in the gas chambers except for me i don't want to be alone i want to go with them and magnus reminds her you can't give up he's like the thing that gave her hope to survive if you go back to uh, testament again you can't give the nazis that victory he says we live you and i that's important that means something that matters i'll protect you uh, for now and always as i did in the camp uh, we get some, some captions that kind of advance the time a little bit. Uh, I'm going to read one more here. For a time, they were little better than animals, yet somehow, sick and hungry as they were, they survived to wander south into the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah, I think it's huge... important just to stress that they did that they escaped before yeah. the liberation of the camp. So right. they were really on their own. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have any assistance, and it's just the two of them. Right. Yeah. They were not taken to the Hotel Lutetia, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. They uh so they find work and new friends. They they establish themselves in a shadow like a, a little rural village, uh, and they start catching up on life. We get a couple panels that show them Magnus is carving wood and chopping wood and reading and having dinner with friends. We get a one panel image of their wedding, and then a one panel image of their brand new baby girl wrapped in a pink blanket. Uh, it says their daughter Anya was born, and they learned contentment. Uh, Connor, will you take us through the next little section? Uh, tell us what happens. Sure. So, and, I, and I'll give it an early content warning, as I did with the last one. But folks, take care of yourselves as we re- recount this part, because this next section is rough. A rough read. Well, pretty pretty famously, nothing good happens to Magneto's daughter Anya. So, like, spoiler alert. But yeah, this is this is rough stuff. Um. But he also had an insatiable hunger for knowledge coupled with a wildfire intelligence, which soon outstripped the best that simple Highland existence could offer. So because Magnus wants more than the simple life that they've found, he takes them to Ukraine in the Soviet Union because he wants to study at university and get a college education and support his family better. Uh, they end up in Vinitsa, and Anya is just a delightful child who is curious about everything. Uh, Anya was his hope, his talisman. She made all he had endured worthwhile. Her questions never stopped, bursting from a sense of wonder that awed him and made him vow repeatedly that he would never allow the world to make her suffer as he and Magda had. And he goes to find work. Magda doesn't want him to because the way people are looking at them makes her frightened. Magda is Romani, um, which is important because in Claremont's conception, I think it made Wanda and Pietro the children of the Holocaust, right? Like they were born of both of the ethnic groups that were the majority of people targeted by that 
regime. Um, but also, I think it is meant to, like, her fear of these people, I think it is born from a slightly different experience from the one that Magnus had as a Jewish person who saw his family lose their status as Germans, right? She Like, her family never really had that status. They were always seen as others. So she's quicker to doubt that the people around them are going to are, are, have good intentions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he he says, have you forgotten my promise? With me, you'll always be safe. I'll be back this evening, Anya. Look after your mother till then. And they have a hug. We get the the memories in Paris again, his, you know, torment. Um, he tries to wake but cannot. Vinitsa had been leveled by both armies, German and Russian, so there was more than enough construction work to go around. Unfortunately, even in a socialist worker's paradise, there are always those more than willing to exploit any opportunity for profit. The foreman at the construction job that Magnus has taken is taking a commission off his work, not giving him everything that he's owed. And he's so angry about it, Magnus is, that a crowbar activates like with his without his because this is before like the, the the thing that's important here is that Magnus discovers his powers at a young age, but is frightened by them and doesn't learn to use them or explore them very much in Auschwitz, right? He's still surprised by them every time they show up. Yeah, like it's it's uncontrollable still. Um and so he... this is a this is a theory I brought up on my show a couple of times, but there's a line of dialogue that or it a caption from Scott Lebdell once that posits that the reason Magneto's powers didn't activate in the camp is because he had syphilis and it blocked his powers, which is an interesting thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't that doesn't quite track for me but you know what like god bless um so anyway he the crowbar slams into the the wall behind the guy who interprets it as a threat uh because it is but magnus didn't mean to do it and the guy's like fine here take your goddamn money um I wanted to lash out at him. Did I somehow make it move just by thinking about it? Impossible. Madness. Yet then, yet how then do I explain what happened? I must tell Magda, if I do possess some fantastic extra human ability, the inn, because the inn is on fire. Uh, this is the titular fire in the night. Um, he screams that he needs to get through because his wife and his daughter are in the inn. Uh, and he runs inside to find Magda in the fire. Anya, in our room upstairs, I left her sleeping when I went shopping for supper. The fire's too hot. I can't get to her. Our daughter, she's trapped. We have to save her. And Eric insists, Magnus insists, that Magda leave. He will go. He's, you know, and try to try to help. Uh, he spontaneously generates a force field around them when the flames encroach, which terrifies Magda um, and he pushes her aside because Anya screams from up top she leans out the window there's a fire in my room Papa I can't get away I'm scared help me be brave sweetheart I'm coming but how do I make this power work do I desire a thing with all my soul and somehow the power makes that wish come true but then the Ukrainian 
men around him grab him and hold him fast. You're under arrest for extortion and assault. You can't, my daughter, please. Papa, the fire, I'm burning. Resist officer of the state, will you? Better teach this dog a proper lesson, Dimitri. Please, my daughter, they're beating him with clubs. Um, is that the end of my pages? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's pause you there. And then, Saber, do you want to take us through what happens at the end? Often we pause to reflect, but I, I think we should just get through it. We'll I'd like to just it. get through this one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, sure. Honest. And, well, then things get worse from there where, you know, <laughs> uh, he he's desperate for help, for uh, a way to sort of save his daughter from this burning fire. And instead, the, the foreman from earlier, guy in a green hat, um, so we all just refer to him as green hat from here on basically rubs it in his face what's going on and publicly lies about what happened earlier and says that, you know, he was the one who was the honest businessman and Eric tried to cheat him. And, you know, before he can even really protest very much, the screams intensify, the fire intensifies. And now he is begging anybody to come and help the situation and nobody will. And Green Hat basically says, well, it's because you're obviously you're an enemy of the state. So no one's going to no one's going to help you here. And he offers his condolences and says, but, you know, you've only yourself to blame. Before that, we see Anya on fire leap from the window to her death. It's like, Uh, yes, it's almost hard to distinguish. It's like a little fiery, like human, human shaped figure, like jumping into the blackness. It's so sad. God, it's this jumble really draws the hell out of this. Yeah. And it's 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 such a heartbreaking artistic rendering of it because it's all fire. The callousness of, oh, condolences, you know, like they've just watched a child burn to death and they just don't care that much because they're Jews or the G word or what you know, whatever the people think they are, they know that they're not good people, decent people, you know. And so he can do nothing but watch his daughter fall out of this building. It's it's terrifying. And so he basically snaps and the comic cuts to black. And when we return, we see that everybody around him is dead. And we experience we sort of fill this in from Magnus perspective where she says, you you killed them all. And he is not remorseful for what happened. Um, he is sort of reacting to his own actions himself with, with I think, a slight bit of surprise. Perhaps not. You know, we can unpack this together. But it seems as though he didn't have full control over his powers. He just sort of acted on instinct. And Magda is, is sort of terrified by both the display of his powers and the brutality of his nature. In, in the way that he punished them. Is, is that how you guys are interpreting this? Or are you no, that's absolutely it. I mean, when he comes of, to, yeah. basically, he's crouching over the charred body of his daughter and all around them, all of these men have been ripped to pieces, basically. Yeah. Um, and Magda runs away because he's a monster. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very complicated moment because in the moment that she's reacting to his brutality... She's saying, you're not human. And his reaction to himself is almost the opposite. It's almost like, yes, I'm far more than human. I'm, I'm not human and human. that's good. Right. Whereas she's hor- he's sort of. Yes. Well, and humans we're, we're just did this to their him, child. So she runs you away. Know? Yeah. Right. And um, he never. And so she runs again. away from him. Yeah. And he never. Sees yeah. Her again, and he calls never. out after her. 
but he never sees her again and cannot chase after her because he's been so drained by the just use of his powers that he can't chase after her. And it is the last time that he sees her. Uh, and just continuity question for you experts is, is, is that the, the existing continuity that this is truly the last time he yep. ever sees Magda? She dies. She dies on Mount Wondegore, theoretically giving birth to Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. But now that didn't happen. So very unclear. I, it, I guess she just ran away and froze. It also depends on which version of that story you get. Cause in other versions, she didn't die. She just ran away and they never found her, but I mean, Mag- they never found her. But Magneto right, does but... have a grave to her on Wondergore, the, the Wondergore that he visits uh, from time. to Yeah. Time. I think so, yeah. she's dead and it would at this point, why bring her back? It would be kind of a weird thing to do, especially now that she's not Wanda and Pietro's mother. Um, but that's a very complicated continuity. Robert, I'll send you, I, I have a whole Magda episode. I'll send you a link if you want to learn more. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's not a Sounds ton to good. learn. She's she's a supporting character who's been dead for a long time by the time of any of the stories that we're reading. Uh, right. Walk us through the last okay. two pages. Um, yes. And so uh, from this, uh, Eric wakes up and, you know, from this dream to the smell and the sound and the sight of a fire. And thinks that perhaps it was the was it the smell of the the smoke that may have prompted this dream this memory to begin with um and so he sees across the street that there's a mother and daughter who are trapped in this fire very reminiscent of the fire that his daughter was in and he knows that the fire brigade is not going to reach them in time but he can but should he uh and he hesitates because they're merely human they're not really of any concern to him is what he's thinking to himself yeah, yeah. And so then we jump into the perspective of the mother and daughter as uh, the mother is trying to figure out a way to save her daughter, but is sort of trapped. And then the wall collapses and we reveal Magneto in costume, having decided to actually come to their rescue. And so he creates this magnetic bubble, much like he did with Magda for the, the first time earlier. Um, and he lowers them down to safety where they're reunited with, I believe, their her husband, the father. Um and he says, you know, how can I, you know, repay you or thank you? And Magneto simply says, you know, you can't, but you can tell the world that your family was saved by Magneto. Magneto, the terrorist, the supervillain, Magneto, the mutant. Remember me always. I could have let them perish, but I chose life. And so the, the, the husband acknowledges that you may be all of these things and more, but first and foremost, you have proved yourself a man. He says to Magneto, who already has his back to him and is flying away. And I just picture Magneto flying away and being like, fuck you, I'm not a man. I'm a mutant, goddammit. I just told you that. <laughs> <laughs> what is the impact of this story on this character? It's often referenced, well, not often, seldom referenced, but when it is, it's always as like some of the most impactful moments. In uh, in Kieran Gillen's Professor X issue of Mortal X-Men recently, uh, Xavier is thinking about how when Magneto's powers activated, he killed a whole village full of people. And that's an example to him of how dangerous people can be. Uh, we have an issue in X-Men Red recently before Magneto dies, where he is reckoning with the idea that although mutants are being resurrected now, he will never get Anya back. Like whenever these stories are brought up, it's always with big impact. Well, uh, but this Anya is just thing- a... Oh, go ahead. The Anya thing is critical, right? I mean, that's part of Al Ewing's genius with that arc, uh, which I, I, I think is one of the best. I mean, I, I can't talk enough about X-Men Red, but um, this is where the what we were talking about earlier with the way that that Kitty Pride or Kamala Khan, you know, the way that the, the mutant metaphor intersects with minority experiences, but is also different. Um, Magneto assumed 
that Anya was a mutant or that she would have been because it's something that of course like he's he's a Jew his children will be like he's you know in terms of the way that the state saw him as a minority your children are what you are right and so the idea that she might not have been a mutant never occurred to him at all and the realization that she can't like he sacrificed everything to build this paradise where mutants can come back from the dead in a way that the victims of the Holocaust cannot uh, or the victims of the pogroms afterward and before. And she can't have it and she never will. And it's what leads him to abandon Krakoa. It's what leads him to, well, to, 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 make the final sacrifice, right? Because there are lots of Anyas out there, mutant Anyas, who he can save, um, but his daughter can't be saved. And it challenges his entire supremacist framework about mutants, right? The whole homo superior idea. He did it all for his daughter who was killed, and she wasn't a mutant. She was just a homo sapien. She was someone who's of no concern to him in this story, right? So I think it's a really genius twist on the original story, and I uh, I, I have nothing but fulsome praise for Al Ewing about it. The other time this story is referenced uh, really directly is actually an uncanny 274-275, the Zaladane yeah. arc, yeah, one of yeah. Claremont's last stories. Um with these characters, one of his last issues of Uncanny, really, like there's only about, you know, a handful more. Um, And in that, it's because most people probably hadn't read this classic story. So it for a lot of people, the story about Magneto's daughter dying in the fire is from 274, 275, because that's where you get the brief recap. But it's because he's dealing there with the Soviet general or Colonel, I forget. Uh, and he hates the Russians because of what happened. Um, it also comes in because when he's going to kill Zaladane, Rogue is like, you know, the answer to what happened to your daughter isn't murder. Um, and what I find most interesting about all of that, just from a Lorna and Zala and all of that perspective now is like, well, if Z- Zaladin was maybe also Magneto's daughter and he didn't know that. And so the idea that he murdered one daughter, one long lost daughter in revenge about his other long lost, is like it adds to that, the brutal tragedy of that even more not that you know Zaladin's pretty evil so I, I get why he uh he killed her but it's just one of those things that there's all there's so many layers with this character because of all of the the sea of retcons beneath him um basically I just to me it's just I, I can't um I don't know, Chad, you asked me if I wanted to do this story and I was like, not particularly, <laughs> but I also feel like I should, right? Uh, it is really, it is really powerful. It's important. It's, powerful. it's really it's really important. It's really important to what Magneto represents as a Jewish character. Um, it's important to what Anya represents as a Jewish and Romani character. Uh, it's important to, to everything that Claremont, as a Jewish writer of mixed heritage himself, his mother was not Jewish, so it's a similar situation to Anya's heritage, although, you know, the Romani aspect is is not 
similar to Claremont's, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, and, um, and Claremont it, it, gives it, us it, a lot of, he gives us a lot of stories where every time Magneto tries to be good, humans show him how awful yeah. they are. And Orcus mm-hmm. is yet another example of that. We're seeing well, that yeah. out of Ms. Marvel, the new mutant right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's what he impresses on Storm as he's dying, is like, th- they're never going to accept us. And, and Charles doesn't understand that. And you need to be, when inevitably... I mean, he predicts what just happened at the gala, right? Which is like at a critical moment, Charles's martyr complex is going to ruin everything. And I need you to prevent that from happening. Uh, And she would have if they hadn't distracted her on Araco with a civil war. Um, So, you know, it it just, uh, it underlines the difference between Charles and Magneto, which is that Charles he always believes in the inherent goodness of man uh, and Magneto does not. Saber, let me hear some of your thoughts on this story and its impact as you're hearing us kind of talk about its legacy. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's fascinating to hear you sort of unpack, you know, how this has impacted the character and what other writers have done with it. Um, Having read this for the first time, only recently, you know, I got to experience this as a father and husband myself Mm. and it, 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 it's it definitely adds a layer to this character in the sense of yes this is so clearly a tragedy that nobody would ever get over that you would have to incorporate what happened and how you responded to it into your new reality with every new decision that you make uh and it makes me wonder and curious of what would have happened to this character if his wife hadn't left him mm-hmm. if she had processed this moment differently and that he continued to have a life with this human. Like what you know, what what is the, the heartbreak side of this equation done to this character? Um, but yeah, I think I think there's there's so much here to unpack and so economically done. The fact that he he had this whole other tragedy after surviving the Holocaust. Uh things are not not easy for Magneto ever. You know, the there fact are, that this is all done in 12 pages is a real testament to Claremont's yes. economy of storytelling. He's Claremont does some Claremont does some of this shit in like one or two pages sometimes. He's I mean, he's the it's true crazy. undisputed master. <laughs> he's the master managing your real estate really, really well on a comics page. Now, by the time we release this, this will have happened. But in a few days, I'm flying to Minneapolis for a convention and I get to meet Claremont for the first time. I'm actually oh, wow. That'll be interesting. He's a yeah. he's a character. I've uh, I've done my homework. <laughs> Do not ask his opinion on any comic that's been published in the last 20 years. No, Unless you gonna, want to, but I would not. I'm just going to tell him I'm a big fan. That's uh, that's, that's a great choice. <laughs> he's, he's really, he's a real sweetie. Like he, he, he took 45 minutes with me once on a line, like just to, to, to debate finer points of like Madeline Pryor continuity. Like he's a, he's a real, he's a real mensch, but he is, he is cranky and he plays it up because he knows that it's funny. So, um, <laughs> Uh, Saber, do you have any final thoughts as we start to wrap up here? I'm still processing the whole story, to be honest with you. So it's a lot lot to take in for sure. So we're going to, we're going to do again, a lot of Magneto content this month. The next episode coming out immediately after this is going to jump into classic X-Men 19, which shows us uh, a story of Magneto as a Nazi hunter in Argentina. It's a, it's a powerful one as well. My guests on that, uh, my future guests on that is going to be uh, Maureen Burdock, who wrote the incredible graphic memoir, Queen of Snails. If you have not read it, you should. Uh, Seth Martell will be joining me as well. Uh, We're going to release this episode on October 9th. So as we are wrapping up 
uh, gentlemen, where can people find both of you online? And is there anything you would like to plug for around that time? Uh, I will go first here. Gray Malkin Lane is uh, mostly on Instagram these days. Gray Malkin underscore Lane. Feel free to add me and say hi anytime. I'm on the various other platforms, but mostly on Instagram. Uh, I also am putting out regular Patreon content. The next uh, character we're doing on Patreon, also Magneto adjacent, because it's Magneto month, is going to be all about uh, Django and Maria Maximoff uh, with my friend uh, Daniel Byrne. Interesting. They're one of the weirdest wrinkles in the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver continuity. With with uh, the Cthon and the Mad Puppets. And, and the all. Puppets and the, yeah. <laughs> but also just like, who are they? Like the, the, they're, the constant retcon of who they are in relation to the twins is... Uh, when I did the Quicksilver episode, the most frustrating thing about writing the character file, because I do it in publication order, was trying to figure out like when each retcon about their parentage happened, because it was pretty crazy for a long time. Uh, and uh, Connor, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I've quit Twitter cold turkey. So you can find me on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. Connor, like the late, great Sinead O'Connor. Goldsmith, like a jeweler. Uh, you can find Cerebro at CerebroCast. You can find all of the details on Cerebro at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Uh, check us out on Patreon. There's bonus content. Uh, I love doing the show. I'm excited to be back in the swing after the summer con season was just a little bit crazy. And then some stuff in my personal life got complicated. So uh, I'm just excited to be to be back. Um by now, the Amanda Sefton episode will be out with Anna, with Anna Peppard and probably also the Juggernaut episode with Anthony Oliveira. Um, but TBD, we'll see. <laughs> the production schedule is always complicated. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's the gist. You can mostly find me these days on Instagram or on the Cerebro Discord. That's the only those are the two social medias that I'm still using. Uh, love Anna, love Anthony, love your show. I'm very excited for both of those, and it's great to see you, my friend. Uh, and Patrick Sullivan's coming back for Trish Tilby, so I know you're gonna be, yeah, you're gonna <laughs> love that one. Uh, and then uh, and then Saber. Uh, you can pretty much only find me on Instagram, um, just at my name at Saber Pierzada. Um, and currently, you know, out on the stands, I've got Cult of Carnage Misery, which wraps up this month with issue five. I believe it comes out towards the end of September. Um, and Ms. Marvel, the New Mutant, uh, continues to come out monthly. Assuming there's something you can't announce, can we predict to see more content from you in the future? Uh, yes, you can. Yay! <laughs> I will listen. I'm a huge fan. It's wonderful to get to know you, my friend. Again, I was a fan before, but one of my favorite parts of this show is forming relationships with people that I respect. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and tackling this crazy Magneto content with us and uh, and sharing your story. It's great to see you both. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Every once in a while, I like to uh, take a hard turn to the left and review a book that has nothing to do with the X-Men. Uh, but I still invite our guests to review X-Men content. So this is going to be a, a story about Magneto in the latter half. We're going to be reviewing a rather serious story about Magneto as a Nazi hunter. But we'll get there in a little while and you will quickly see the correlation between uh, today's focused guest and uh, the episode content as we arrive there in the latter half. I'm so happy to be joined by my dear friend Seth Martell today. I'm also thrilled to be welcoming uh, Maureen Burdock to the show as our uh, feature guest today, uh, as well as 
the uh, the lovely guest, Kendra Boileau. It's really lovely to meet you both. Uh, let me have everybody here introduce yourselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we may know you from. And uh, today's intro question is, uh, what's a movie you can remember seeing in early childhood that affected you as a storyteller? Uh, let's begin with Maureen. Hi. Hey, Chad. Thanks so much for having us on, on your podcast. I'm delighted to be here. And I uh, let me introduce myself. Yeah. So I'm Maureen Burdock and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I'm a graphic graphic storyteller, I call myself, with a PhD in cultural studies. So I like to do heavy research and put that into fun comics that are relatable by the mainstream. And uh, the first movie that I saw that really spoke to me was, I want to say Yentl. I remember seeing Yentl. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I was sort of pre-adolescent or just adolescent at the time, maybe 12, 13. And I remember thinking that uh, Barbara Streisand was incredibly sexy. So it was kind of a kind of a sexual awakening for me. I don't often actually have crushes on actors and actresses, but it, it, that movie really uh, did something internally that felt really deep. And I think it was also bound up with her experience of being a misfit in her culture and needing to find a way to study and be have access to to knowledge the way her male counterparts did and that was the premise of the movie was actually quite feminist in that sense so it spoke to me on a lot of different levels and uh Maureen can you hear me that's uh that's the best I can do that, that, that was a papa can you hear me reference <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's great to meet you Maureen uh let's go over to Seth next hi Seth Hello, um, my name is Seth Martell, uh, he, him. Uh, you might know me from my graphic novel, The Mayor from Graphic Mundi or tabling with these two really fun, incredible women at PCAF or the Graphic Mundi table at SPX. Uh, I also do some art for this show. And the first movie that I really remember having an impact on me was not in a good way. My mom took me to see the re-release of Pinocchio and he went to the island where all the kids turned into donkeys and it terrified the shit out of me. <laughs> that was awful. And then I think I, I do remember him after all of that, like absolutely terrifying part of all the kids turning into donkeys and he escaped and went into the ocean. And I still actually have very vague memory of it, but he washed up on shore and I thought he died and I cried so hard my mom panicked and had to drag me out of the theater and i think it was equally traumatizing for her so <laughs> these old stories with like the morals being like unless you're a good boy look at the terrible consequences that will be visited upon you that come from our parents generation <laughs> uh and then over to kendra next hi kendra hi thank you so much for having me chad um it's good to be here so um my name is kendra wallow my pronouns are she her hers I am not a creator like these other two fine people, three fine people. Um, I'm a publisher, so I'm the publisher of Graphic Mundi, which is a graphic novel imprint of Penn State University Press. Um, and it's a fairly young imprint. We, we launched it in January or February of 2021. And we published about 25 books, graphic novels since then. My 
my um my earliest the first movie i remember seeing has something in common with the other two it was traumatizing and um also a musical uh, it was oliver um, and this is going to date me. I don't think I saw it when it was released in 1968. I'm sure I saw, you know, like a comeback when it came back to the theaters well into the 80s and I was still a child. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, it's the story of an, it's the Dickens story of an orphan. And um, and I was so struck by the scene where he goes up and asks for more, um, you know, and, and I also love the music. I, I I loved musical. I think musicals were kind of film musicals were at rage at that time in the 70s. So I realized um, how much I like music and musicals and, and also literature. Um, but it was also a very upsetting story as well. When, uh, when I was 12, we moved from Missouri to Idaho after my parents' divorce. And I tried out for the play Oliver uh, wanting like a chorus part and I got the lead as Oliver. Oh my so gosh. That, that story, that musical was a huge part of my youth. But my youngest child has a friend named Oliver and I recently showed them that clip, that song of where the kid asks for more and they like chase him around and like grab him by the ear and they drag him off. And my, my, my son was like, why? All he did was ask for food. I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, you guys know me as the host of this show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian and memoirist. Uh, I uh, The first movie I can remember seeing back in the VCR days, we recorded Cinderella, the Disney movie, off of TV. So I remember it distinctly it had like commercials in it that we'd have to fast forward through on this tape that we watched a million times as a kid. But I remember being kind of struck by the idea of the female protagonist who also had to do housework and just wanted to be a princess. <laughs> but uh, the, the little mice and uh, especially the cat Lucifer, I think, were my favorite characters. Uh, when I think back to early childhood, they're the ones I think of most, even though that film came out uh, 30 years before I was born. I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's a seminal one that I still love very much. Uh, I want to begin today by uh, talking about uh, Queen of Snails, which is the graphic memoir uh, done by Maureen Burdock. Now, Seth and I are pretty good friends. We text quite often. Uh, so I feel like I know Kendra and Maureen a little bit through Seth as related by his experiences with each of you. Uh, Seth had a chance to meet Maureen at a show and recommended Queen of Snails to me, which I then ordered. And I don't offer compliments unless they are uh, real. Uh, I read a lot of things for this show and I interview a lot of creators. And my two favorite things that I've read in the last year are Secret Identity by Alex Segura. Uh, Alex, if you're listening, it's one of my favorites. Uh, and Queen of Snails by Maureen Burdock. This graphic novel or graphic memoir is so incredibly moving. Talking about finding and discovering ourselves through our family stories across generations. It involves... Uh, coming of age, uh, the exploration of memory from different time periods, reckoning with family past and how it affects our present and future. It is so beautifully done and so incredibly orchestrated. And the art is lovely. It has almost like a coloring book feel, but it's more, uh, I, I don't know how to describe the art style in this book, Maureen, except to say that I love it very much. And it's unique uh, and it stands out among things that I don't often see printed in such a way. Uh, if we could start there, I would love to hear you pitch uh, Queen of Snails to our listeners and tell them uh, what this story is, because it's incredible. Thank you so much for your really kind words. And, and thank you, Seth, for recommending the book to your friend Chad. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, this book is really a, a work that took about 10 years in total. I had a couple of false starts. And it is my own process of reckoning with a difficult 
family past, family history, a difficult uh, experience growing up as a child between cultures, a third culture child between Germany and the United States. When my mother brought me to Chicago in, in the late 70s, I was in second grade and I was completely unprepared for this move. I didn't know that it was going to happen. It was really a shock to the system. And so I had a really difficult time coming to terms with that move, with having lost my family, my culture, my language, and my friends, everything you can imagine that creates an identity, an early identity. So in that sense, it's about coming to terms with identity and all of the different layers that form that identity. So coming to terms with learning a new language, coming to terms with living in Midwestern United States in a small, small town in Wisconsin and having uh, no, no real support no family around me where I felt really at home, where I felt held. And then uh, coming to an understanding of what that even means to belong and slowly rebuilding that sense of self by looking around me, by going outside, by taking walks, by noticing how beautiful things are, by forming new relationships by learning to see things uh, from kind of a snail's perspective. And that's where the title comes in. It's a, it's a very humble, low to the ground process of, of understanding self in place. And so the snail is a really important metaphor throughout the book. My my paternal grandmother, who was very loving and kind to me when I was little in Germany in the Black Forest, actually gave me that nickname, Schneckenkönigin, Queen of Snails. So that's where it begins with that earliest sense of feeling at home and belonging. And of course, the snail's shell is the snail's home. So the snail is always already at home. And so it's a relearning of, of, being able to find that feeling that is so elusive to many of us. And uh, yeah, and I, so I, I stay really close to the ground in the book. I have the metaphor of the snail and I have other biological, geological metaphors. I, I use geological metaphors like earthquakes, like tectonic shifts to describe a, a blind thrust fault, for example, is something that happens deep under the earth where plates shift and you don't always see on the surface the destruction that's caused underneath. And of course, that's a metaphor for a psychic wound that you know many of us carry with us, these wounds that aren't visible on the outside, but they form an important part of who we are. And, and then of course, I'm looking for a way to heal those sorts of deep rifts. Uh, I want to start with the cover of this book very quickly, because I think it typifies a lot of what lies within. Uh, the Queen of Snails on the cover has a young girl 
uh, very playfully dressed in kind of summer clothes with long pigtails and a crown of flowers around her head, riding on the back of this massive beast of burden kind of snail that's slowly moving forward. And you can almost see it on the page as uh, as the child holds up a dandelion that uh, the seeds of which are kind of blowing off into the wind. Uh, Maureen, I would love to hear about what inspired this particular image. I know it's an image from the book. And tell people a little, a little about your journey as an artist. Uh, I know that's a specific part of storytelling, obviously. Yeah. Oh, thanks for the great questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm riding on the snail, so I'm really little. And I think, you know, a lot of us can remember being being kids and being fascinated by miniatures. You know, you can kind of imagine yourself. I don't know if you guys had this experience, but I remember going on a hike with my family and just being in this beautiful place with mossy rocks and waterfalls and deep forest and kind of imagining what if I were tiny enough to live among the the moss and the rocks there. And what would that look like if I could make myself, if I could shrink myself down to, you know, the size of a thumb. And there's a lot of fairy tales like that, where, you know, like, uh, I can't think of the names right now, but Tom Thumb, for example, uh, where you experience the world as a tiny creature. So I play with scale a lot in the book, mass scale, you know, from mass um, histories like World War II to personal histories and these personal, intimate, small moments. And both have great significance and weight. So you can play with that really well in the comics form. So on the cover, I'm shrunken down to this little creature who's small enough to ride on a snail. And I'm playing with the title Queen, of snails by having this dandelion crown, which again is something that many of us made when we were little. We made little, you know, little crowns out of flowers, out of da daisies or dandelions, and pretended we were royalty in some some form. And so I'm I'm sitting here and I'm my queenly self, but again in this really humble, down to earth way. And I think the dandelion for a lot of people can signify wishes, making wishes where you you blow on the seed head in the that's you know that's after the yellow flower and you blow on it and you make wishes as as the seeds disperse. So it's maybe looking forward in that way uh, and being able to make wishes for a different future. It's also for me about memories and each little seed is a memory that can plant itself and become a new plant, something different. And I think when you examine memory, I've had this experience that every time I revisit memory, there's a whole world of possibilities in seeing everything differently. Every time you go back, when you retell a story, you can tell it in this whole new way, and it opens up a whole new world. So to me, the dandelion is also that. And thirdly, I talk about diaspores in the book. So diasporic plants are plants that have to die in order for their seeds to be dispersed, for there to be new life. So it's also about my family, which was 
very much dispersed as a result of the war and of being refugees at the end of World War II and being sort of blown to all corners of the earth and then needing to replant themselves and start anew, which is, we perceive this as tragic and it's indeed really difficult to be a refugee, to, to be a transplant and to have to start over again. It's immensely difficult and painful, but also it's tremendously hopeful when you think about how many people, especially in the 20th and now 21st century have had to do that and and it's it's possible to do it it's a world where it's possible to thrive despite that despite those difficulties so there's some hope in that image too i adore like we take one single image and listening to the complexity of you exploring what that means uh, i'm going to come back with a couple more questions for you in a moment but kendra if i may i would love to hear from your perspective as a publisher in 2023 how is it that you select the types of books you want graphic moody to be involved with when you take a book like queen of snails or uh seth martell's incredible book the mayor uh how do you how do you choose books from the large stack of books coming in at you uh i i having read both of these there too i'm a huge fan of but i'm sure for everyone you choose there are a dozen others that have to be uh set aside what's it like being a publisher nowadays oh it's um it's exciting it's also um it can be frustrating having to having to choose um because there's so much wonderful work out there um, that we obviously can't publish all of. Um, so I'm I'm looking for narratives that um, that inspire an emotional connection between the reader and and the and the book um, so that encourage the reader to pull the reader into the story, relate, learn a new perspective, um, learn about difference. So and and in the case of Maureen, I. I met Maureen actually before we started publishing the Graphic Mundi. She and I met in uh, academic circles uh, working on graphic medicine and I saw her art. I think it was in Berlin um, at a conference in Berlin. The first time I saw Maureen's art and it was the braid um, that features somewhere in Queen of Snails, um, another beautiful, uh, beautiful metaphor that she uses in this book, the metaphor of the braid and braiding parts of her identity um, uh, together in this memoir. So I knew that I wanted to publish her work as soon as I saw a sample and, and knew that it was part of a larger book project. Um, and then in terms of, Seth and I met um, because he submitted a project to uh, COVID Chronicles, which is the anthology of COVID comics that we published uh, to launch the imprint in 2021. Um, and um, I, I loved the work that he did for, for that anthology. And then when he pitched his graphic memoir, so also looking for, also looking for um, graphic narratives that uh, connect with important issues and, um, you know, uh, sort of play with scale between the personal personal narratives and also larger issues that um, that so many of us can relate to, like in Seth's case, uh, in the case of the mayor, the protagonist has an alcoholic father and there's family dysfunction and an ugly divorce. Um, and so she's dealing with a lot of these larger issues as she's trying to find her way, um, her way forward and purpose in life. So um, yeah, I think both of these creators here did a really good job 
combining personal narrative with larger big picture issues that we all wrestle with in really compelling ways. And that tends to be the kind of the kind of book that we publish in Graphic Mundi, um, uh, mostly nonfiction, but some fiction, as in the case of the mayor, but also ones that cause you to think, maybe cause you to change your mind about a certain issue or cause you to think about someone else's experience that maybe you had never thought about before. Um, so again, coming back to serious, serious issues um, that, uh, you know, so projects that hopefully entertain, but also open, open your mind and, and create connections between the reader and the creator, um, and also uh, the reader and, and other issues, other cultures. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, Seth's my favorite artist, so well done. <laughs> it's a beautiful book, and I know it's been uh, received uh, well, uh, uh, at least among the people I talk to. Uh, Maureen, I have two very light, fluffy questions for you in a row, uh, and I'm kidding. They're not light or fluffy. <laughs> your, your book, Queen of Snails, is very much a coming-of-age story. In a large part, it's about reckoning with the past. It's it's uh, loss of innocence. It's understanding a wider world. Uh, the reckoning of family history as it relates to Nazi Germany uh, and you kind of exploring evil as it relates to some of the people from your past and the impact of trauma on your own kind of coming of age story. I would love for you to share a little bit with uh, with our listeners what that process was like for you. Uh, you take some deep dives into some key characters uh, and it's done in this beautiful way with like childhood innocence along the way as well. But uh, but there's some deep themes of trauma and, and the reckoning of history there as well. Uh, can you share a little about that? Sure. Yeah, that is a light and fluffy question. <laughs> Welcome to uh, podcasting with a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, I think it was a especially complex growing up with family members who had been both victims and perpetrators in different ways. And it was something where I think I say in the book towards the beginning that I don't remember ever not having known about World War II. It was such an important player in my upbringing. It was something that was talked about constantly by by my mother and then by my mother's mother um, because they had been displaced from their home in Silesia by the Russian army in 1946. And that was one of those pivotal moments where there was the life before and there was the life after for them. And a lot of the reminiscing was about the life before displacement. And so I grew up with this consciousness that they had been displaced. And then of course I was displaced. So I, and I was displaced at the same exact time at age seven that my mother had been displaced in 1946. She was also seven. So very early on, I recognized that this was history repeating itself and that it was a family pattern. I don't remember how old I was, probably my early teens when I began to recognize that consciously. So yes, it's it's. I recognize that this had a massive bearing on who I was starting already in early childhood. And then as I grew up and as I 
had more information, of course, I would see their stories through a different lens. Their stories didn't change that much. They're kind of the stories of trauma survivors where there's a lot of repetition. That's part of part of trauma is a constant retelling where the narrative doesn't change a whole lot. And but I was changing a whole lot. So I would get information. I would learn about World War II in school, for example. Um, and I would then see their position from a really different angle. So that was very complicated uh, as a child to make sense of all of that, going to going to the second grade in rural Wisconsin and having kids taunt me because I was German and saying, you know, your uncle must be a Nazi. Um, or your dad or your uncle or whatever it was. Um, and and then having my grandmother sort of talk about Nazis like they were the good guys. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I had to sort of sort through that and make sense of it. And at the same time, I'm growing up in this uh, military industrial uh, super state that is itself perpetrating wars constantly on other people and still has this narrative about how World War II was uh, very black and white, where Americans were the good guys and the Germans were the, the bad guys. And they're, you know, we kind of hearken back to that a lot um, as a culture because it, it feels like a safe zone where America was good and and it was really. Uh, the contrast was so stark that a lot of the rest of the cultural problems fall to the wayside. And I didn't see it that way growing up. I saw it all as being evil. When I was asked if I wanted to become a U.S. citizen, I said, no, thank you. I sense fascism here. I don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, this is going to turn into the same thing as Nazi Germany. I I saw it and I I didn't want to be a part of that either. So uh two two evils don't make a good and <laughs> um it's it's so much more complex than than victims and perpetrators even though there's no there's no moral ambiguity when we're talking about nazism there's no moral ambiguity when we're talking about concentration camps that is evil if that is absolutely evil with a capital E. And I'm not saying that that's a complex issue. It's absolutely not. It's absolutely horrendous beyond belief. And it's absolutely horrendous beyond belief when the United States firebombs German civilians. It's absolutely horrendous beyond belief when the United States perpetrates wars on third world countries for for uh, financial gain. And, you know, so that's the the whole kind of sticky stew that I'm sifting through in in this book. As I, as I mentioned at the start of the show, this is Magneto month on my show. And Magneto, uh, his childhood is in Auschwitz. And if you go back to the first episode we released in October, we have a review, uh, a, a long review of Magneto Testament, the incredible series by Greg Pak and uh, Carmine Di Gian Domenico. Uh, uh, and at the end of that, we talk about the rise of regimes uh, and how America is very 
close in some ways to the party that rose to become the Nazis. It's an interesting thing. We'll talk more about this in the latter half of the show, but uh, good and evil are concepts that we love to explore in fictional ways in comics, particularly at Marvel. But the two things that seem to be universally agreed upon as evil, at least in a comic book format, are Nazis slash kind of white supremacists and serial killers. Like those, those are the places we can easily take it and go, those guys are bad. We can try to reckon with the guy who robbed the bank or, you know, who's a, who becomes a supervillain through indoctrination. But uh, but Nazis, the first Marvel comic that ever came out was, uh, was the, the cover is Captain America punching Hitler in the face. Like that's the one place we can start uh, our understanding. But we'll we'll explore uh, Nazis in uh, Marvel history in the latter half of the show as we get there. Um, I uh, I would love to ask you as well, and I know this is another serious one, about the concept of uh, coming out. Uh, ironically, we won't release this until a few weeks later, but I recently recorded an episode with uh, Natalie Norris about her incredible graphic novel, Dear Minnie, uh, which is another episode coming out later this month for Magneto Month. And I quoted this lyric. Uh, I'm, I'm a guy who's written a memoir. When we're putting our truths out in front of people uh, and sharing the way our story is, this is a, a verse that always pops into my head when I consider uh, having put my book out there and the story that I have to reckon with uh, as my children are aging and people find my book that know me. Uh, there's a line in an, an Alan Nanak song, uh, excuse me, Anna Nalik song uh, called Breathe. One of the choruses says, and I'm not going to sing. <laughs> uh, 2 a.m. and I'm still awake writing a song. If I get it all down on paper, it's no longer inside of me threatening the life it belongs to. And I feel like I'm naked in front of the crowd because these words are my diary screaming out loud. And I know that you'll use them however you want to. And that chorus will play over and over in my brain. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your coming out story uh, as you explore it in your book, if you would. And how has the reception of the publication of this book uh, been received by your family? Oh, another another fluffy question, Chad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, coming out was uh, not so easy in the '80s in a small town in Illinois, in Crystal Lake, Illinois. I was in high school. I guess I kissed a girl in the second grade. I don't know if I was, you know attracted to her. I had a friend say once, you were probably just looking for a piece of candy uh, at that age. But I think not, I was looking Not to be confused, listeners, with the book Candy by Terry Southern, which we're not <laughs> going to go back there today. <laughs> go ahead. I think I was just looking for warmth and affection uh, and friendship at that point as a seven-year-old. And, and uh, then things were further complicated because I talk about in the book uh, an incident when I was nine where I was sexually abused by a relative, by the boyfriend of my great aunt. And that really did a number on me. It really, it really further decentered me and made me feel lost in, in the world and made me, filled me with self-loathing for a long time. And it was hard. It's hard enough to come into adolescence um, without experiencing sexual abuse. But with that experience of being violated in that way, it takes, I would like to say it takes longer to, to find one's sexuality and gain confidence and feel comfortable with who one is. 
And it did. It took me longer. It, I was so far outside of myself um, and so uncomfortable with myself in my own skin that it that it took me longer. But- I've shared this on my show before. I'm also a sexual abuse survivor. And for many years through my adolescence, I learned to believe that that's what made me gay. Uh, and I know other uh, abuse survivors who have come to think of it in that way as well. Uh, coming of age and coming out become more difficult when we are the victims of such a thing. Yeah. It, it's easy to confuse those things, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of see yourself as just fucked up, basically. And then the mainstream culture is telling you that being gay is fucked up. So you kind of learn to conflate the two. And uh, and then I, I also had a parent who was super religious who was who was underlining that and and, and affirming it and saying, yes, you are if you think you're gay, it's because it's because this happened to you and she would actually send me books because you can find books written by conservative christians that say exactly that so uh you know so it was exacerbated by by that relationship with my mother but i yeah it was confusing and then to make it even more confusing i i'm bisexual so i would you know get a crush on a girl and then I would have a crush on a boy and and you know so I'd be like okay I have a crush on a girl I must be gay and I know I have a neon L emblazoned on my forehead and everybody can see this as I walk down the hall in my high school and then I'd get a crush on a boy and I and and then I'd be even more confused and today I think that's not such a big deal anymore I I have a lot of hope for the generation now that's coming into their sexual identity because there's a lot more room to be to be by to be whatever you want to be you can you you have a lot more options but back then it was like oh okay you're not straight that means you're a lesbian or you're gay like there there wasn't this whole realm of possibility oh binary thinking yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and how's it been publishing a memoir? How have people received it? You asked before how my family has received it. You can answer however you choose. But yeah, yeah, how's that? How's that been putting that out there? I, I, as a person again who has written about my family, I had to be careful about what I chose to share and how I chose to share it, knowing people would read it. Yeah. What's that experience been like for you? Well, my mother actually died before it was published, and she was a huge part of the process for me because while she was still alive, I could email her or call her and ask her all sorts of questions when I didn't know dates or places or names. She would supply them for me. So I felt really grateful that I had her while I was going through that process, and I think for her and me, it was healing in a lot of ways because we talked really openly about things and she was supportive of me doing the project. So that was really lovely that I had her and I I knew that I was grateful at the time and knew that I wouldn't have her forever. And then she suddenly and unexpectedly died like a year before the book was published. And so her death became the prologue, yeah. the Queen of Snails. And, and that I felt really grateful that I had the ability to kind of grieve in this way too, and make that a part of the book and have 
my love for her and be a part of the book that is, I think, really evident, even though we have such massive differences. It's, um, a, it's a powerful prologue. Yeah, thank you. And then I, I, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to add to that, Maureen, that your your book has also received some really stellar um, reviews from mainstream media like Forward and Publishers Weekly, um, Library Journal, um, Broken Frontier. Uh, the Santa Fe Reporter piece was really nice. Um, so yeah, really nice, nice reviews. Um, uh, Thank you, Kendra. Yeah, I think I think people, when they get it, they really, really get it. Mm -hmm. They they know they appreciate the process, and they understand it as a window into coming to terms with identity and family and family history. And that's how I intended it. That was my process. It's kind of a model of a process that you can engage in to come to terms in your own way with your own history. And I think people who really appreciate the book, they get that. And the reviews have been incredibly deep and generous and nuanced. And people, I can tell that people are engaging with it in this really intimate, and meaningful way. And that makes me super happy. I pay attention to how I feel when I read a book. And your book takes me to a very vulnerable, kind of raw place, but also a place where there's a lot of hope and power uh, associated with it. And there's a claiming of your story as part of your identity and kind of pushing forward to, we experience time in the moment, right? So when we're processing through things as liberated out, happy, content adults who are telling our stories and choosing to, there's a power in being able to do that from a confident place. I think that gives readers permission to be okay, even when they're reading about hard things. Uh, Seth, let me direct this question to you, uh, and this is for for uh, for both Maureen and Seth and 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 Kendra on the on the uh, outside of this. When you are spending day after day crafting these stories, drawing these characters or these versions of ourselves. Uh, coloring and producing and then marketing and pushing it out there, and then you publish. What is the after-publishing process like as you see people engaging with your book, as you see it being put into libraries and reviews come out? Uh, how has your uh, your experience as a uh, a man with a published book, the mayor, out there been? Well, you know, panic and delight and then <laughs> not really not knowing what to exactly do with yourself or like how to direct your energy because all of a sudden you have a different kind of free time, um, which is, uh, you know, you really have to think about that. I think while you're working to the strategy of, of what you're going to do next is is really important and and how you are ready to to then it's a brand new chapter, you know, um, you're you're still making sure you create something going forward for people to talk about and talk to your, you, you know, you were holed up for so long. And then all of a sudden you are then the focus, not your, your work is still the focus, but you have to speak to it. And that is an insane challenge. Um, I, I wonder Maureen, since you, you process so much of your book through yourself, I, I wonder if you felt it was easier or more difficult because it's your story, you know, it's, it's truly you, like, did you, do you think that because you worked through so much of what the story you were telling and it was your story 
did it make it easier then to to tell and pitch your book and talk about it or was it more difficult because it was very personal I think maybe a little bit of both, right? Because I can I can talk from the first person, which makes it easier. This is my story. This is what happened. But then I think the challenge comes in how to make that relatable to other people and sort of what parts to focus on. And I think that's where it's great going to these to these comic book shows and things. Um in the American Library Association, these different venues where we've had the opportunity to talk about the work. And I think it takes practice like anything, right? You just, the first time you're sitting there, it feels really awkward. And yeah, and I I, I can be a little shy um, sometimes when I'm in a public space. And so there's, you have to get over that a little bit so that you can, you know, so that you can, sometimes it's easier, Seth, when we're tabling together, it's easier maybe for me to talk about your book and for you to talk about my book. (laughs) (laughs) We did take turns and it was really helpful. And also just to see, um, to watch people respond and understand there's like a psychology of just kind of how to communicate your, your book in small segments of like how much you're going to tell somebody, you know, how much you're going to like judge their curiosity and not I mean, not scare them away, but like some people are really just passing by and some people really do want to engage and you don't know until you kind of put the feelers out there. And it was it was fun to watch Maureen and it was fun to watch Kendra. Each Everybody has a different way of doing it. But um, yes, it is way easier to sell somebody else's book than your own, <laughs> at least to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, too, when you when you kind of meet somebody one on one, you're meeting people and you you kind of if they're willing to engage with you in conversation that's the first hurdle you want them to not just keep walking and browsing you want them to stop and talk and then once you know a little bit about that person it becomes easier to figure out how they're going to relate to your book and what theme to select to talk to them about and then then it then it becomes more organic and it's 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 everything leading up to that point that feels hard. <laughs> and then yeah, it, and not having not having ego in it too, where you know your book may not be for everybody. <laughs> right. I was at SBX, a woman walks up to the table and she's looking at each of the books and she's like, oh, I read that one at the library. I love that one. I read that one at the library. Oh, is one of these yours? And I said, oh, this one's mine. And I pointed to the mayor and she looks at me and she goes, oh, that one's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay i mean sure <laughs> and you, you know it 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 really charmed me and you know you have to just realize that not everybody is your intended audience and that's okay and it's just interesting that they picked it up and and even tried to engage with it that's still fun we're going to uh we're going to shift gears in just a moment but let me direct uh one more question to Kendra quickly one of the great blessings of doing this podcast has been uh, regularly surrounding myself with creative people. Uh, looking at uh, Seth and Maureen here, I, I don't know everyone you've worked with at Graphic Mundi, but I do know I've engaged with Rob Kirby a bit and uh, Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos is one of the loveliest humans ever. Uh, working with creatives who uh, pour their life and blood and tears and sweat and money into these projects, uh, how has that uh, influenced your life? Uh, I would love to hear. And then I would love to hear what we could look forward to coming out from uh, Graphic Mundi uh, in the next quarter, if you are willing to share. Yeah, sure. Thanks for those questions. Yeah, I will say that the opportunity to work with such talented, thoughtful 
creative, um, inspiring people is uh, the best thing about my job. And um, I did not build my career on publishing creative work, graphic novels. I built my career on publishing academic, um, academic books, um, which I don't intend to disparage at all. But this is so different from that, right? So creating with, uh, connecting with creators on such a personal level, um, it, it's such an honor for, for someone to entrust, to, to send their, their story to me and entrust me with it and ask for feedback. Um, so I find it tremendously fulfilling and, um, and, and really, you know, my work is done essentially when the book goes into production and then my colleagues in production and marketing take over. But I also really enjoy um, getting back to what you were talking about earlier. Once a book is published, you know, the, the story is not over there. I love going out to these conferences. I've been out to TCAF with, um, with these two, um, Rob Kirby at ALA, and watching them engage with um, engage with their audiences is just so, so gratifying. And that's, you know, ultimately that's why we do this is is so that people read these books so that people react and so that people connect it's basically drawing our worlds together is is one of the taglines of of graphic monday i'll just throw that in there and i love watching i love watching these connections be made and also um i love you know being able to connect with so many creators um Coming forward this fall, we have we have four new titles this fall. One is called I Don't Want to Be a Mom. Uh, it's not a topic that is talked about a lot. It's very stigmatized. Women who choose not to be a mom, who choose to be child-free. Um, I think there's only one other graphic novel on the market on this topic, and this is coming forward either this month or next month. Um, it's a graphic memoir, um, and it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful graphic novel. Another graphic memoir that we're publishing is by an Israeli uh, creator who lives in the West Bank, was raised in the West Bank in a conservative uh, Jewish family. Her father was a rabbi. So um, part of the story is um, getting a sense of what it's like for her to grow up in those cultural circumstances in that region of the world, and also questioning her faith, um, which, which can be hard to do when your father's a rabbi. Both of these books, um, I think, are important because they offer women a chance to think through hard personal issues and make their own decisions. And we're seeing uh, we're seeing choice being taken away um, in in scary ways. And so, both of these women, I would say, any any creator who does who writes a, um, who creates a memoir has a lot of courage putting themselves out there and to do it in such a public way, wrestling with such important topics and claiming their voice and taking a stand, um, I think is really important. So those are two books on the fall list. Also releasing, um, re-releasing in Graphic Mundi, two books that we published um, a few years ago in the graphic medicine line. One is the story of a Sri Lankan family um, trying to get away from the war. Um, and find refuge in the UK. That's a heartbreaking story. Uh, it starts with a tsunami and and then the the conflict and um, and it's uh, it, the art is beautiful um, and it's a beautiful beautiful book. And then the other is um, called Escaping Wars and Waves. It's um, the story of I think primarily Syrian refugees in camps in, in Greece and also in Calais. And um, I think maybe there's a camp in Germany where they, they find themselves in these camps as they're, as they're um, finding their way to better life circumstances and um, the kind of mental health care they receive there. 
Um, what I like about this book is that all of all of what we hear is coming from these characters themselves, um, and they are talking about their what how how the experience of migration has affected them um, and the kind of care that they're receiving, um, especially when it comes to um, you know trauma and other mental health issues. So if you're interested in knowing more about what we have published in Graphic Mundi so far, please go to graphicmundi.org. Um, you'll find the list of our publications, you'll find creator profiles there, um, and uh, basically a lot more information about the ethos of the, of the imprint. Our books are available for purchase um, in stores everywhere and also at graphicmundi.org. You can order through our website, bookshop.org, and so forth. Um, and you'll also see us out on the on the conference circuit. So Toronto Comics Arts Festival is one that we typically attend, Small Press Expo we attend, um, and uh, a few others throughout the year. So when you're out there at the festivals, come looking for us. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for your interest. Yeah, Kendra, what a joy to meet you. Thank you for uh, your great academic energy. It's really nice to uh, put a face with the name. Uh, and, uh, and and how lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Uh, Seth, Maureen, and I are going to continue in the latter half with uh, some Magneto crazy. Maureen, uh, I, I know it's kind of a tall order to ask someone to jump into kind of an old continuity story like this. Are you an X-Men fan? Uh, <laughs> are you... Uh... Are you a Magneto fan? What was it like for you to visit the issue that we're about to introduce before we jump into the content? Um, I'm pretty new to the X-Men and I think it was actually my wife who introduced me to the X-Men via the movie. Um, so <laughs> I I read this, this is the first comic I've read first x-men comic ever that i've read chad so thank you what a what a jumping in place <laughs> <laughs> when, when i told her what the show was based on and and i mentioned magneto she said oh yeah that makes sense that i can see the connection to your work and yeah that's great that's a great story so um she's in the know more than you know her. certain stories require a particular type of guest or voice to be able to provide an authentic witness and this one has nazis in it so to <laughs> tie in the content from your book into this one uh seth i don't think i've ever asked you this on the show are you a big magneto fan what do you love or hate about this character Oh, gosh, yeah. Magneto's great. I mean, I hate Professor X, but, you know, Magneto is not <laughs> right. I mean, I think it just really goes back to what Maureen is saying is that the complexity of character and people is, you know, we always want to say what is good and evil, but neither are always right and neither are always wrong. And I think one of the really great things about, I mean, from Claremont to just today's writers are, you know, the understanding of the shades of gray and you know, there are terrible things that each of them do thinking that they are in the right. And that's the most interesting part about them and why they're fun to read. Uh, okay, we're going to introduce this story really quickly. Uh, I got to recap this earlier in the episode or the previous episode with uh, Connor and Saber. Uh, Classic X-Men was a title that was running in the mid to late 1980s. Chris Claremont at this book had been writing the X-Men for, I don't know, 12, 13 years and this is before the internet, so they were reprinting Claremont's stories in a title called Classic X-Men. And then Claremont would write original content at the back of the book 
that was meant to accompany the story that preceded it that was the reprint. So we got to talk about Classic X-Men 12 last time. The story we're going to review today is called I, Magneto. It's from Classic X-Men 19. It's in the latter part of the story. This was published in March 1988. It's written by Chris Claremont with really lovely pencils by John Bolton. Uh, Nell Yamtov is the colorist. Tom Orzakowski is the letterer. And uh, the editors are Terry Kavanaugh and my friend Annie Nascenti. Uh, I want to give just a little bit of context. We talked earlier about Nazis. Nazis is the place that we can universally agree is the worst. It's the 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 clear supervillain area that we don't have to question if they are right or wrong. Now, there's a lot of stories about Nazis in Marvel Comics. There's a lot of ties to modern characters. Again, we have a ton of World War II heroes. In the 70s, Roy Thomas gave us the series uh, The Invaders, which was a, a, a more modern telling of the World War II adventures of like Captain America and the Human Torch and Bucky and all those characters uh, fighting Nazis regularly. Uh, Captain America, you know, got knocked into the iceberg at the end of the World War II and then emerged in the early 60s with the sliding Marvel timescale that makes it crazy. But some of the earliest foes he faces, uh, even with the Avengers in the 60s, also have ties to Nazism, including Baron Zemo and Baron Strucker and the Red Skull, who are all characters from the war that have a modern place in comics. Uh, there's a lot of others like Master Man and, and Warrior Woman. Adolf Hitler literally transfers his brain into a comic book character called the Hate Monger. Uh, there's the rise of Hydra and the Sons of the Serpent and the Fourth Reich and the Axis Mundi. There's all these characters that we're not going to talk about today that involve direct uh, references to the Nazis. Uh, a weird one is a Swarm, who's the evil Nazi scientist who's made up of killer bees. Uh, there's Arnim Zola, who's the evil geneticist who experiments on people and has created his own dimension. Even the original Circus of Crime was a part of a World War II Nazi story. Uh, Mr. Sinister has ties to Nazi Germany, uh, as far as X-Men fans go. He was in the concentration camps before he took the racist gene out of his body, which is a thing Karen Gillard recently explored in some of the modern comics. And of course, Magneto is inherently tied to this. Magneto first appears in 1963 as a quick recap. It's Claremont in the 80s that gives us his early story. Magneto lost his entire family in the concentration camps. He grew up over a period of years in Auschwitz. Uh, he became part of the Sonderkommando. He left with his wife, Magda. Uh, when they tried to find a peaceful life, uh, he uh, was the target of some really unfortunate circumstances, which led to the death of his child who burned in a fire. Uh, Magneto lashed out with his powers. Continuity-wise, this story today would be set after Uncanny X-Men number 161, which is another Claremont story that talks about Professor X and Magneto teaming up to fight Baron Strucker and the early part of Hydra. This is where we meet Gabrielle Haller for the first time. And at the end of that story is the very clear division between Magneto and Xavier's dreams, uh, where Magneto goes off with stolen gold that the Nazis took from the war uh, in order to kind of fuel or fund his own career. Now, again, Magneto is a supervillain, but he's a sympathetic one because we see him exploring what it means to stand up for the rights of mutants, who he considers his people. Uh, and he's aware of the world and its evils. Uh, Maureen, you don't have to worry about any of that continuity. I'm just setting it up for our listeners. <laughs> uh, the other piece of this particular story today is it's one more story driven home by Claremont where Magneto is clearly choosing a particular path. This is a story where he's trying to work with humans on their terms. 
but uh, but he is unwilling to do so after learning some awful things in the story we're about to review. There are a lot of real-world concepts that are brought up in this story today. A lot of Nazis fled Nazi Germany. There were circuits of people who helped them get out of Nazi Germany. Many relocated to South America. A lot of uh, Nazis were war criminals that were uh, were put on trial in Nuremberg. And there's some famous movies and films and documentaries about this time. Uh, Magneto in this story is in Argentina looking for uh, looking for Nazis who have escaped uh, uh, notice. And uh, the story opens with one particular Nazi, and I'm going to introduce some terms very quickly here, who in the war was an Oberstrombahnführer, if I'm saying that correct, which is a rank in the Nazi party, basically meaning like a senior assault unit leader. He was also part of the Waffen-SS, which was the combat branch of the Nazi party. Uh, So there's a lot of things that are are tied in here. This particular character was also a member of kind of Prussian royalty. Prussia was a country. Go look it up. It fell a long time ago. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but it's it's an, a, a lot going into this. Uh, Maureen, before we jump into the story itself, what was it like for you to visit these like real world concepts explored in this fictional universe? I thought it was really interesting, actually, how I didn't expect that it would be so grounded in actual historical fact. And that was something that I admired, that it was woven in in a way that you didn't, if you didn't know that that there were ties to historical characters and so forth you you'd just think it was really great fiction writing it's kind of seamless the way it's done and so yeah I I I have admiration for that aspect of it for sure yeah it's really interesting uh Seth do you have any thoughts on what it was like to jump into this particular story I'm kind of assuming this was your first time reading this particular Magneto story this one yeah um but it, to me, it was like a 10 pound story in a five pound bag. Like it is, there is a, it's a concept that I really like that they explore. And I think that it's, um, it's not that it's poorly written. It is just condensed. I felt like it really tries to cover a lot of territory that could be, and what is an interesting story, but just really packed in almost too tightly, if that makes sense. Yeah, this could be a 48-page story, and it's done in in just a handful. Uh, Claremont does a lot of that with his early explorations. He'll just pack a lot into every panel. Uh, so let's open this book. The story is called I, Magneto. Uh, Maureen, would you be willing to, and I'm here to support you in any way you need, would you be willing to open uh, this story for us? Tell us what happens at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. I'll go through the first few pages. So um, it starts with the Nazis who were masters of Europe, quote unquote, and they fled to South America. And we don't find out which country they're in at that point. We just see sort of yellow desert nothingness. And it mentions the South American sun. So they're baking in this in this kind of, uh, you know, hot, deserty environment. And they've constructed a fortress for themselves there that's really heavily armed and guarded. And uh, they've they've gone from being conquerors to being refugees, from being predators to being prey. And it's immediately rem- reminiscent for me of World War II movies where the German officers are barking commands and, you know, they're like, mach schnell, mach schnell, and things like that. So that's the first page. And then we meet 
Magneto on page two. Are we saying Magneto or Magneto? Uh, you can say it. Episode. You can say it either way. This man is wearing like tight purple clothing with like a cinched belt and high boots. Fashion icon Magneto, looking good. Yeah, yeah, looking real good with the sort of silver hair, super muscular built guy. He shows up on on page two of the story with a maniacal cold grin on his face and he immediately uses his mutant powers to repel the to shatter the fortress walls and to repel the german bullets and they're like oh what is this what's going on with this guy how can he do that and the germans decide okay that's maybe just the bullets that he can resist. We're going to try all our heavier artillery. So they pull out the tanks and they pull out the helicopters and they go after him and he just shatters all the tanks and flings the the uh, helicopters away with his magical powers. And, and part of the part of the interesting thing here, we see Magneto really using his powers for the first time. If you go back and read that story, Uncanny X Men one sixty one that I mentioned, we see him openly using his powers in his fight with Hydra and Baron Strucker. But this is the first time he's kind of letting loose, and it has an impact on him. His powers are early exploration here, and they cause like headaches and feedback, and and he's kind of struggling because he's really flexing here. He's like moving helicopters and tanks around, right? Uh, which is something modern Magneto could do easily. But when we consider the advent of his powers being rather unexplored he uh he he feels the weight of them very quickly yeah so he he succeeds immediately in smashing through the german defenses and then he finds who he was after in this case uh this guy hans Richter, who was an ss officer and i actually looked him up to see if he exists in in the real world and there was a hans Richter who was an ss officer but I think it's more an amalgam because the actual historic character, I don't think, um, I don't think he fled to South America. So I think it's maybe an amalgam of different characters, but they use this name, which is sort of a typical German sounding name, Hans Richter. So he says to Richter, to the guy he was looking for, that he's here to bring him to justice since he escaped the Nuremberg trials. He's going to take him to Israel where he'll be tried in an Israeli court. And this German soldier, SS officer, uh, starts to protest immediately, says, oh, but I was just a soldier doing my job for my homeland. Boom. And Magneto's <laughs> like, oh, stuff it. Like, shut up. I don't want to hear it. Same old song and dance of how you were just doing your duty which was funny to me because I grew up, you know, like hearing these kinds of stories. They were just doing their duty, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> that's still part of the rhetoric and, uh, you know, the the kind of banality of evil theme of, you know, they're just doing their duty. But, you know, at what point do you resist evil and say, no, I, I won't do this. And, and we'll see the impact of this in a minute. But part of what yeah. makes this story special, as written by Claremont, because again, it's paired with uh, the earlier reprinted story where Magneto is flexing and fighting the X-Men hardcore. But this is a story where Magneto is using restraint. He's choosing not to kill this man. He's working with humans to bring this Nazi man to justice. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, we'll get to that in just a minute. But him using restraint here is part of the story. Yeah, he's he's pretty reasonable at this point. He's 
he just wants to bring this guy to justice. He's basically a Nazi hunter wanting wanting to bring this guy to justice. So I really empathized with him at this point. And so he he uses his powers to sort of handcuff um, the German guy, the Prussian officer. And, you know, the Prussian officer is whining about, oh, you think I'm going to get justice? You know, if you take me to Israel, like, you, you expect me to receive a fair trial from Jews, he says. And, you know, so we don't really feel any sympathy for this schmuck. Um, and, yeah, he's gross. <laughs> yeah, he's just gross. <laughs> he's just really gross. And Magneto brings up the the German war crimes on the Russian front and, you know, the killing of German women and children. And uh, so... Seth, will you... Oh, I'm sorry, Marion, go ahead. Uh, I'm almost done. And then at the, the bottom of page five, we see Magneto, he's still speaking, but he starts kind of holding his head and he looks like he's in agony and there's this red background, which is makes you think pain and sharp pain and he's clearly having a horrible migraine or something and and the narrative reads that it's the worst pain imaginable and it's worse than than um having lost his family and worse than you know and it kind of lists these things that give you insight into magneto's history so it's kind of condensed into these three little text boxes uh, Magneto also finds, as as this Nazi is proclaiming his innocence, Magneto also opens a safe and finds it full of the spoils of war, things that this man stole from his victims in the camps. Uh, Seth, will you walk us through the next few pages? Tell us what happens next. Sure. Is this when we're swapping to real? Uh, page six. Uh, so ah, Magneto, six, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so also, yeah, no, I said I said this was in Argentina earlier. This is in Brazil. My apologies. Well, it never really states, does it? I guess so. It's in Brazil later. I don't know where they find this guy. Never mind. <laughs> in South America place. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right. So he's you know he wraps it up with uh, saying, "Control, this is Magneto. I have a package for you." Uh, so we he's fine. He just has a slight headache, and we swap to Rio two weeks later. Um, and he's reading an article about Professor X. And it's just kind of funny that in Rio, he found a nice English newspaper for us to read. We're now but, a mutant expert lectures at genetics conference. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, this part is like the most Claremont thought narrative ever, you know, dreaming of a world where mutants are normal and humans can coexist in peace. We hate so easily. I suspect you ask more than humanity is capable of giving. I mean, that is just Claremont at his most nar narrative uh, thoughts ever. Um, but I think it's, you know, still really good to show how he feels about Professor X and, you know, what his, you know, what his perspective is that he doesn't uh, hate him. He just he's clearly seeing someone that is an old colleague who has a very different perspective than he has. There's and, also there's also kind of a running through line in Magneto's stories here where people are assuming his powers are driving him mad. And Magneto's thinking to himself, like, I may need help learning how to control my powers. I wonder if I wonder if Xavier could help me. I wonder if he would be willing to do that because he's a teacher now, which is interesting because, uh, you know, he this man doesn't ask for help ever. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. And, you know, it kind of also goes to show that he has made contact with a doctor who is a uh, he's having a relationship with but it's a little bit confusing i think they're trying to establish that there is a is there any uh pretext with isabel and any other 
comics? No, there's this woman, Isabel, that shows up. She's treating Magneto, but she's also super hot. She's treating him, but they're also fucking. Uh, uh, and she's she's hot. She's a, she's a pretty lady. But they're throwing it in here. Like, you know, I, I think it's just, again, that like very Claremont thing. We're like, oh, you know, Isabel, she's been here for weeks treating him. And you're like, she's been on two panels, guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is her only story ever. It's also so, really confusing because she's drawn so differently from one yes. page to the next. Like her outfit changes. She literally has straight hair and then suddenly it's wavy. So <laughs> like, is this the same person? It's totally true. John Bolton is, I remember this because I, I used to collect these classic X-Men comics, Maureen, and he is a phenomenal artist, but his character work was always really kind of inconsistent between people and panels. But his work was beautiful, and I actually think it would have been really incredible in black and white, too, because he's, like, really big into these, like, very dramatic shadows and lighting. Um, you know, and again, you know, she shows up as a doctor to, you know, meets him in her her bathing suit to present the wild side of her nature, which is kind of a, a funny segue into them being back in his room, and she's in an outfit change. And I, I guess, again... I, I'm not really sure where the scene change happens. They go from out on the street to in his room and she's completely in different clothes. So I don't know if that is an accident or... I, I, I think we just, you know, she meets him in a bikini top and a skirt. We're going to assume it's a little later. She's put on a dress. They went out to dinner and now they're back at her place. Wink, wink. Yeah, but there's no segue. <laughs> no segue at all. Um, but yeah, so he, you know, he kind of spills his guts here. You know, he he you know, clearly feels close enough to her at this point now where they've established a long-term relationship and he gives, you know, he, he bears his soul to her that the powers he used to slay the mob who kept me from saving her Magda about his loss of his, you know, loss of his daughter and how he, you know, he went and killed everyone after that. Um, and, you know, tries to, you know, somehow make a connection with her. And it's interesting because he's not using his powers, but he then has another attack. Um, so I don't know if it's, you know, somehow maybe supposed to be like emotionally connected. You know, like this, these attacks are you know, like when he has like a, a very in, intense emotional feeling and maybe the, the powers are also like emotionally connected. You know, there's characters uh, that are tied to their powers in particular ways. Richter is kind of tied to the seismic plates of the earth. Uh, Storm is connected to the powers of nature. And I think certain things can affect their ability to process and think clearly or give them headaches when something's happening on this level. Magneto's tied to magnetic forces. Uh, and he just, I don't know if he's learned how to tune it out in, in the way that like Jean Grey might struggle with the thoughts of other people. There just seems to be an element of his powers are really difficult for him to rein in right now. Yeah, so, you know, Isabel, you know, is seemingly trying to just, you know, kindly relax him because... Isabel's you know, trying you know, to get laid. <laughs> she seems like she's trying to be a little bit nice, too, though. You know, she's talking about his, you know, you manipulate the primal energies of the Earth, and that must have some effect. Your seizures involve the central nervous system if there is some disruption in the bioelectrical network. Yeah, but she also got him back into a hotel room, got him to take his shirt off. She's sitting on him on the bed. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because you just had this conversation with James DeMattis about talking about how his personality could be, you know, through different writers has been affected by the use of his powers and all different writers ways that they were trying to talk about how it did affect his personality. Absolutely. But, you know, that was only lasted for a second until she gets her throat slit totally fast and furious. Um, and Magneto <laughs> must have really passed out quick while he's getting this uh he doesn't hear somebody sneak into his room or grab her from behind or slit her throat, like all in three panels. 
<laughs> yeah, and I'll I'll take over here. This is kind of a rough spot. So Magneto was working with this organization hunting down Nazis. And what we're going to learn here in the latter part of this story is this organization is working with some of the Nazis in order to profit from their uh their spoils and and so because Magneto found this particular Nazi that he was not authorized to find, uh, they have now sent their agents in to kill Isabel in order to teach uh, Eric or Magneto a lesson, which is rough. So she gets her throat slit by a guy named Rod, which is a terrible name always. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Magneto's very, very confused. There, The man seems to be Irish who's talking to him. They basically say, you know, this you, you should have just done your job. Uh, Richter, the man that you killed, was one of ours. He was an important asset. You made some waves and now we are going to get back at you basically and magneto is furious these guys are nazis they're war criminals how could you do this and they're like you know the russians are the enemy now we got to move on we got to we got to change and magneto's furious he tries lashing out but it turns out this guy that's the control agent is wearing a vest that has been uh prepared in case uh this because this is how you fight magneto is you got to create something that's going to cause his powers to overreact or or make something out of plastics uh, basically, if you try to attack me with this special vest I have, it's going to cause your powers to lash out tenfold. Uh, and, uh, you know, hey, you got to learn your lesson here. Magneto will not be killed. He's furious. Not by such as you, he says. He blows the roof off the building. He floats into the sky and he says, little man, you have no notion who you're dealing with. I am homo superior, the next generation of humanity, heir apparent to this paltry planet. As Cro-Magnon supplanted Neanderthal, so shall we, you. And I have you to thank Control for showing me the true path. And the man says, you're insane. He says, no, enlightened. At last, for the first time, my eyes are truly open, my destiny clear. You are like children, intellect and power without the maturity to use either responsibly, unfit to rule, lives or world. Better to be ruled instead by one who shall now make sure, by one who shall make sure you know and keep your place. And he throws this man just across the skyline. It is neither communists nor Nazis you have to fear control. It is we who your short-sighted stupidities will make your uh, your foes. It is I who shall lead my people to the glory they deserve. I, Ubermensch, I, Magneto, I, Mutant, I, Magneto. And then uh, his, his voice kind of drops as he looks at the corpse of Isabel below him. I, Magneto. He was just talking about how he was a monster, how Magda saw him as a monster when he lashed out as his powers. And now he's choosing to be that version of the quote-unquote monster again. And uh, the, the closing caption here says, and the dream dies and the nightmare is born. Uh, the idea of what Magneto's reckoning with, uh, he works with humans and it goes so dark. Uh, they're willing to work with these monsters. Uh, it's a choice he's never going to make again. The impact on him seems very, very powerful, but it is kind of rushed. Uh, uh, Maureen, are you familiar with the concept of Ubermensch? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a word that the Nazis actually used, right, to define mm -hmm. themselves. Like, we are the superior human race, and that's what it means. Like, superhuman, basically, is the direct translation, above human. So it was odd to see him use that word to describe himself. It is. And, and uh, if you read Magneto number one by James Mateus, there's this idea of Magneto protecting his people at all costs, but also to some, he appears to be the dictator, the Hitler-like figure who is rising above. And the complexity for this character is really fascinating because he won't go through his childhood ever again. 
Uh, and the only way, if you can't work with the humans, you got to fight against them. And this is the counter dream to Xavier's, uh, which is the kind of bedrock of the X-Men franchise in so many ways, the uh, Xavier versus Magneto philosophy. Uh, Seth, what are your thoughts on this story as we as we uh, uh, complete? Oh, I mean, I think just kind of what I said before, I think that it could have been better done with some air to breathe. It felt really rushed. And I, got, I was even a little confused at the end until I reread it a second time because of how quickly they kind of glaze over like the control and then who these guys are at the end. I, I kind of had to go back and be like, oh, OK, it felt like there was a prequel I missed, essentially. Yeah, I almost wonder if it would have been more effective to not have Isabel be part of this story at all. Magneto captures the, the Nazi agents and then they attack him, right? Yeah. The loss of the loss of this woman that he's trusted. And we get someone fridged as a result, and it's kind of rushed. Uh, but I do I do see the impact on this character because Magneto's in a vulnerable place and he's not going to be vulnerable again. But he's also struggling with his powers and choosing to embrace them at the same time. Uh Maureen, what are some of your thoughts here? Um, yeah, the, the Dr. Isabel, um, I, I find it troubling that there's one female character and she's hypersexualized and then killed. And there's no female in this with any sort of power, really, with any sort of real power agency. And so that I found disturbing, but then very typical of the era. And I... I, but what I appreciate is the complexity of the Magneto character and the and the moral implications, moral ethical implications of how surviving horrible evils doesn't make you good. It doesn't. It um, and it almost seems like he draws on his emotional pain for this power that he can use for good and for evil purposes and then there's this ambi ambiguity where he calls himself an ubermensch and the one of the last panels at the bottom of page 12 there's a close-up of his face and he looks very like an Aryan poster child he looks like kind of Nazi propaganda art where they made these really blonde very muscular looking humans and even the angle on his head where he's sort of and there's this thunderstorm behind him it's very reminiscent of kind of nazi art which is super weird in this context where he's fighting nazis so yeah it brings up a lot of interesting a lot of interesting points and and perspectives you can you can look at it in a number of ways, and I, I I appreciate the complexity of it. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Depending on the angle, do you look at him from the trauma survivor perspective, or from the megalomaniacal supervillain perspective, or maybe his powers are driving him mad? Right, like there's all these all these different methodologies. I I do like the complexity of him realizing he can't work with humans ever again. Uh, and that that kind of hard line that he draws kind of sets up his character for where we first meet him in X-Men number one as a result. I would love uh, a whole limited series. I mean, I would love to write it, but I would need a team probably because it's complicated. But I would love to see this whole era of Magneto versus Xavier explored in this like prehistory of the X-Men. Uh, I uh, I think there's a lot of uh, of story there to mine that would be really really fascinating and interesting. Uh, so uh, yeah, Marvel, if you're listening, 
<laughs> let's talk about it uh we are wrapping up our thoughts here uh as we get ready to uh close out what a what a special powerful episode maureen thank you for letting me pepper you with uh with tricky powerful questions <laughs> about your incredible book everybody please please uh, go take a look at queen of snails and the mayor both uh they're incredible works and it's really important to spend uh to to spend on independent storytelling and to support good stories so that people can make good stories there uh i mean i support marvel comics and and the giant big industry level stuff that is being put out there and i'm a super fan but we got to support the indie stuff uh as well in order to make this industry work and fair and uh and we got to let talented people do talented things uh queen of snails is one of my favorite things i've read uh ever it's a beautiful powerful book and uh rereading it this morning was a powerful experience once again so marine thank you for coming on the show and thank you for putting this incredible work out there it's really special thank you so much for having us uh, as we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And uh, we're going to put this out tomorrow. We're just fast turnaround on my show. Uh, where, What would you like to plug, if anything, as far as what's coming up for you? Uh, Mr. Seth Martell, would you like to go first? Oh, gosh. Uh, sure. I You can find me on social medias at, at SC Martell or at my website, SethChristianMartell.com. Right now, I am out trying to make sure people do read The Mayor. I've been going around a bunch of libraries and I have a few libraries ahead where I'll be giving some talks. And if there are any librarians out there who would be interested in a Zoom talk, please get in touch because I love libraries. They're amazing places to get resources and uh, should be supported so much right now. And uh, Maureen. Awesome stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I have a website, maureenburdock.com. I'm pretty easy to find because I named myself after a plant, the burdock plant. So um, you can find me on social media too, um, just Maureen Burdock and you'll find me. And I'm working on a book on, on insomnia right now. So another creative nonfiction graphic novel that's under contract with Graphic Mundi. And so that'll be coming out uh, sometime in the hopefully not too distant future, but it's <laughs> I'm in the midst of that. I can't wait. I'm an even bigger fan after meeting you, my friend. Thank you again for coming on the show. And Seth, it's always good to see your face, my friend. It's great to see you. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I got kiddos. Uh, but you can find Grand Malkin Lane, Grand Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram is primarily where I'm at these days. The next episode coming out next week on the main show after this is going to review Magneto number one, which is a Howard Chaikin story that talks about Magneto after this, uh, going to New York City for the first time. Uh, I'd like to call this episode Magneto the Misogynist. Uh, we'll talk about why next time, but we also get to see the canonically first appearance of his classic costume. Uh, there's also a uh, conversation between my friends uh, Philip C.V., Terry Blast, Amanda Martini, and I about leaving Mormonism and working in modern comics, which is a very interesting niche, but it was a really fun episode to put together. Uh, the uh, the Patreon channel uh, after this, the next episode coming out, is going to feature uh, Astra, uh, the nonsense character, uh, along with uh, my friends Daryl Lawrence and Justin Wilder on that. And then after that, Hussein Rashid joins me to do a really fascinating conversation about Asteroid M and the concept of mutant homeland as it exists in the franchise. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Kendra. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, Seth. We will see you back here next time on Grimalkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grimalkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grimalkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. 
Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.